The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. We got a doozy of a tale here today, taking a break from recent stories full of insane white supremacists to tell a story full of insane black supremacists. Other side of the same coin today, the incredibly racist and also extra murdery and just weird nation of Yahweh cult. This especially violent cult was founded in Miami in 1979 by Hulan Mitchell Jr., super humble dude who told his followers that he was, you know, God in the flesh. He insisted that he would be referred to by super modest monikers such as Grand Master of All, the God of the Universe, the Grand Potentate, the Everlasting Father, and of course, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, Hebrew for the Lord, Son of the Lord. Seems a little redundant, like asking to be called God Lord or Deity God. If you would have been, uh, it would have been more appropriate if you would have been, uh, you know, going by something like uh, whatever colossal piece of shit translates to in Hebrew. Yahweh ben Yahweh wanted followers who would do anything for him, give their belongings to him, give their souls to him, give their bodies to him, kill for him. He wanted a race war to break out and saw himself obviously on the winning side. He asked his followers to go, quote, kill me a white devil and bring me an ear. And he was brought an ear. He built a large and powerful cult. At its peak, his empire's value was roughly $100 million. He had over 4,000 followers, a huge temple, a four-story apartment building, restaurants, stores, houses, a hotel in Miami, a hotel and restaurant in Atlanta, as well as hundreds of white cars, vans, buses, 18-wheelers. He also sexually manipulated and molested an untold number of his followers. He had at least one member who dared to leave his cult, brutally beaten and then roughly decapitated. He had an inner circle of enforcers known as death angels. He convinced women to do things like blow in other women's vaginas, telling them this was how you give CPR to a baby still in their mother's belly. Yes. You heard that right. This story is that fucking crazy. Follow me into the wild times of Yahweh Ben Yahweh and the cult he created in another human sometimes do the most insane shit edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. 
Monday, you curious motherfuckers, coming in hot today. <laughs> yeah. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Bo Jangles, pooper scooper, dean of the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bo Jangles, and glory be to Triple M, recording in the suck dungeon in CDA, feeling the best I felt in a month. Hopefully, I've already had the coronavirus now. Uh, a very exciting, a very exciting tale for you today. Holy shit, uh, this one had me riveted, fascinating, <laughs> insane story awaits. I'm I'm jealous you get to hear it for the first time with no real idea of what's to come other than the little tidbits I just threw out there a moment ago. Uh, got some heated time sucker updates to get to at the uh, end of the show today. Ruffled some feathers this past week a little bit. Boy, howdy. Gosh dang. It's okay, though. That's good. Good to talk about things. Uh, relook at some things. Huge thank you to all who came out to Salt Lake City. My God, those shows were so fun this uh, weekend before last. Uh, thanks to Will XX for uh, the, the cool ink on the arm. It's 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 healed. If you're if you're watching on YouTube, it's all it's all it's all healed now. Look, it's look, it's looking nice. It's looking nice. Uh, the Toxic Dots tour so much fun. Nashville this weekend, March 12th to the 14th. Show's still on. Not a lot of tickets left. Uh, the club was undamaged by the recent tornado. Sorry if your life was affected by the storm. I hate seeing such a beautiful city damaged. And uh, some of the shows uh, sold out. There may be a another show added now. By the time you hear this, a uh, a matinee show on Saturday. Also. I will be in stand-up live in Huntsville, Alabama on the 15th, my only Alabama show for 2020. Then it's on to the punchline in Philly, March 26th through 28th. I'll be at Hawaiian Brian's in Honolulu, Hawaii on Sunday, April 5th. First Big Island show ever. After that, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Hotlanta. Uh, excited to announce that we've already given $4,800 this month to the Martin Richard Foundation on behalf of the Patreon Space Lizards. Uh, Team MR8. Giving almost $5,000 a month now to charities, that makes me uh, feel really good. That money goes a very long way uh, to, to help in a lot of these places. Foundation was established in honor of Martin Richard, a young boy who died in the Boston Marathon bombings. The Martin Richard Foundation works to advance the values of inclusion, kindness, justice, and peace. You can donate either to Time Sucker Matt Cox's GoFundMe fund that he set up to raise money specifically for this charity, or you can donate directly to the charity, both links in today's episode description. A uh, badass Time Suck Hockey sweatshirt hit the store today and, and, a, and a white You Suck Time Suck tee that parodies the classic thank you takeout food bags, those grocery bags, that's also in the store. You can check out badmagicmerch.com for Time Suck merch, scared to death merch, loving our horror podcast apparel, my God, and also for stand-up merch. Been seeing a lot of those three out of five star t-shirts at shows that show up in the, in the stand-up section of the store. Hail Nimrod. And enough about my cult. Our, our cult is so boring. The cult of the curious is so boring compared to the nation of Yahweh. I haven't tried to fuck a single member other than my wife. I haven't, I haven't asked any of you to kill for me yet. I haven't tricked any of you into blowing into other members' vaginas, you know, to, to give baby CPR. I haven't, I haven't done that. I, haven't, I don't have a single death angel that I'm, that I'm aware of. God, gosh dang. So let's talk about a much darker cult than the cult of the curious. Let's talk about the nation of Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to vary my yaws now. Sometimes it's, it's a, a hot one. Sometimes it's like a, yeah, yeah, it's a quieter one. Uh, before we dive into a truly outlandish time suck timeline today, uh, detailing Hulan Mitchell Jr.'s early life and his transformation into the Yahweh ben Yahweh and the formation of and then destruction of his nation of Yahweh cult, let's first take a look at the racial tension and violence that existed in 70s and 80s, in the 70s and 80s, excuse me, in Miami, Florida. 
violence that allowed his cult with the ideology it had to really thrive. And then we'll go over some of the history of and teachings of two radical religious movements that heavily influenced Yahweh ben Yahweh, the black Hebrew Israelites and the nation of Islam. We'll also take a peek at the man who would become Hulan's most notorious and violent follower, former NFL defensive lineman Robert Rozier, a man who admitted in court to killing seven people when he was a member of this cult. Uh, so let's start with Miami. Miami, Florida. And yeah, and this, and this a little bit of context, interesting context. And I will say, whew, this episode, I think it's very interesting in the first half. Oh my, does it pick up in the second half? Uh, Miami, Florida, Miami-Dade County in general, where the cult originated in the late 70s, not exactly the best place to live, not the ideal area to raise a family in. Check out this November 1980 article from the Washington Post, this little excerpt. Since Saturday, 15 killings have been recorded in Dade County, boosting the record-breaking night 1980 homicide toll to nearly 500, or 40% more than the last year. In one Dade County community, the city of Miami, the homicide rate is 70% above that in 1979. Of the death toll, 18 came in the Liberty City riots. Lieutenant John Beckham, head of Dade County's homicide investigation, says, I think a person has a greater possibility of being a victim of a major crime in South Florida than most anywhere else in the United States. Wow. I'm surprised the county's uh, Department of Tourism didn't use that for some kind of promotional commercial. Hey, friend. Why take the family to Disneyland in Orlando like every other schmuck when you can take the family deeper, go south, dive into the darkness of the bowels of the real Florida, beach pods and murder, T-strings and riots in the streets. Right, probably not the best commercial. Uh, declaring an emergency in crime just before the opening of the winter tourist season, Miami Beach commissioners, uh, this article continues to say, ha have closed city parks, piers and beaches at 10 p.m. and approved anti-loitering and stop and frisk ordinances for 60 days. Miami, the nation's 40th largest city, ranks as the fifth most dangerous in the surge of Sun Belt violence, the FBI said. So damn near martial law going on in 1980 uh, in Miami. Also, why does Sun Belt violence sound so much nicer than regular old violence? Like I just picture getting my ass kicked on a sunny beach surrounded by beautiful women, which sounds better to me than getting beat up and, you know, tossed in a snowbank next to the freeway just outside of like Glendive, Montana or somewhere. Uh, things were not great in the Sunshine State in the same article. There was a quote about a t-shirt that mockingly just juxtaposed the view down the barrel of a handgun with the city's actual tourism slogan, Miami, see it like a native. In 1981, Miami would break the 1980 record uh, of 573 murders with 621. Got even more murderous the next year. Thankfully, today, those numbers aren't nearly as high with 75 in 2015 and 81 in 2014. Uh, crime rates across, across the globe have actually gone down significantly since the 80s and 90s. Wouldn't think that watching the news where they want you to believe that the earth has never been bloodier because news producers know that fear sells. Uh, I've said so many times, you know, uh, compar comparatively speaking, pretty damn great time to be alive for the earth's population in general. Hail Nimrod. Not saying things are the best for you and yours right now, but in general, less murdery now than in times past. We have quite a bit of medicine, pretty sweet TV shows, video games you can stream or play from anywhere. We get some pretty good podcasts you can listen to for free, like this one. Could be worse. Uh, but, my, but Miami. Miami had a real problem with drugs and violence in the 70s, and it just got worse in the 80s, especially in the early 80s. By 1984, Miami was known as the murder capital of the USA. Ravaged by drug-related shootouts and immigration of criminals from Cuban prisons, Dade County had the highest murder rate of 1984 with 23.7 homicides per 100,000 uh, people. 
replacing East St. Louis as the nation's most murderous metropolitan area. And a lot of Cuban criminals did pour into Miami in 1980. That's that's not some uh, bullshit fake news, fear-mongering about immigrants. Uh, This is reality. In 1980, Fidel Castro sent thousands of Cubans to Louisiana, Arkansas, and Florida, mainly to South Florida, on a bunch of shitty rafts and boats, roughly 125,000 people, and many of those people were actually criminals. It was a state-assisted mass exodus known as the Mariel Boat Lift, facilitated by the Cuban dictator who emptied his nation's mental health facilities and prisons. He put rapists and murderers, severely mentally ill people, people he just didn't know uh, what to do with, people he didn't want, put them on boats, pointed those boats at America during a downturn in Cuba's already fragile economy, and was just like, here, you fucking have them. It's crazy that happened. Uh, Many other non-criminals bounced as well, to be sure, just to flee a horrible economy, but a lot of prisoners truly were sent out to sea for America. Definitely want to do a suck on Castro one of these days from what I know of him. Uh, Not a big fan. Doesn't seem like a good guy at all to me. Uh, What a novel form of basically warfare to send your least desirable citizens to another country that doesn't want them. What if we did that? What if we just rounded up all of our sex offenders and murderers and pimps and other career criminals and the criminally insane and just send them on a whole bunch of boats headed to the shores of North Korea. Just load them up with weapons. You know, best of luck. Just see what happens. You know, if we lose them, oh well, oh well. Good luck, guys. It's defeat Kim Jong-un or die, you dirty bastards. Uh, Not only was crime high in the Miami area, so was racial tension. On May 18th, 1980, the 1980 Miami race riots kicked off as word spread that an all-white Tampa jury had acquitted seven white and Hispanic Miami-Dade police officers for charges related to murder of Arthur McDuffie. In the early morning hours of December 17th, 1979, police officers had pursued 33-year-old McDuffie, an insurance agent and former Marine, who was riding a black and orange 1973 Kawasaki motorcycle. McDuffie had accumulated traffic citations, was riding with a suspended license. He led police on an eight-minute high-speed chase through residential streets at speeds of over 80 miles per hour, The officers involved in the chase later filed a report claiming that after McDuffie lost control of his motorcycle while making a left turn, he attempted to flee on foot. Uh, That is not true. They were determined to be lying. McDuffie would later, uh, would die, excuse me, four days later from a beating delivered at the hands of the officers. The coroner's report concluded that he had suffered multiple skull fractures. Internal investigations found out that the officers involved in his arrest deliberately ran over his motorcycle with one of their patrol cars in order to break its gauges and make it seem as if McDuffie had crashed. They knew they had gone way too far and they tried to cover up their tracks. The medical examiner, Dr. Ronald Wright, said McDuffie's injuries were not consistent with the motorcycle crash and that if McDuffie had fallen off the motorcycle as police reported, it wouldn't make sense that both gauges would be broken. Dr. Wright said that it seemed as if he had been beaten to death. Uh, Six officers were indicted for manslaughter as well as tampering with or fabricating physical evidence A seventh was charged with tampering with evidence. In the past six years previous to this beating, four of the officers involved had been cited in 47 different citizen complaints and 13 separate internal affairs probes. Six of the officers involved were fired less than a month after this incident. Another officer involved, an uh, an officer who received immunity from prosecution for testifying, painted a very different picture of what had happened than, than the officers originally said. Uh, this guy said that McDuffie had ended the chase by slowing down to 25 miles per hour, clearly yelled, quote, I give up before voluntarily stopping his motorcycle and waiting to be arrested. And then he said that angry officers took out their frustrations regarding McDuffie trying to outrun them on him with clubs, heavy flashlights, and their fists. 
He said that one of the officers first choked McDuffie to the ground with his nightstick before tearing off his motorcycle helmet, striking him numerous times in the body and head, even though he was not resisting arrest. Another officer hit McDuffie in the head with a heavy flashlight. Then numerous other officers teed off on McDuffie with their fists and nightsticks until he lay motionless and stopped screaming from the attack. After he lost consciousness, uh, numerous officers continued to violently beat him. And then all of these officers were acquitted of all of the charges against them after an all-white jury deliber deliberated for less than three hours. And the black community of Miami-Dade uh, County was fucking furious because this was one of many other similar cases. The mainly white police force had been viewed by various predominantly black communities and community leaders as being racist and brutal for many years. This was a straw that broke their back for three days. Hurt and angry people poured out into the streets. When the violence was over, an additional 18 were dead. Another 350 to 400 were injured and 600 roughly were arrested. 238 businesses were damaged. Approximately 3,000 jobs were lost. The riots caused an estimated $100 million in damages. It was the worst riot in Dade County history. And by the way, Dade County, it's Miami-Dade County. It just gets referred to both ways, if that's confusing. Uh, and it would take years to recover. Also, and this really speaks to the racial tension in the area at the time, uh, the riots freaked the predominantly white neighborhoods of Miami the fuck out. According to a study conducted by the Ford Foundation in the aftermath of these riots, the anti-white violence in the Miami riot was unprecedented in this century. And that's a quote. Uh, the report added that not since the slave uprisings before the Civil War had blacks risen spontaneously with the sole purpose of beating or killing whites. A 21-year-old 20, man and two 15-year-old boys, uh, all of them white, were dragged from their car, viciously beaten to death by numerous black residents during this riot. Uh, one of the boys was found with tire marks on his chest. He'd been repeatedly run over. Two white brothers were beaten by various black residents into comas. One of them, Jeffrey Culp, 22 years old, had his ears and tongue slashed and police say had been run over maybe four or five times by a car. And there was many other, uh, you know, victims of black on white violence. And the riot forced all of Miami to re-examine itself. It forced major changes in the Miami and Metro Police Departments. According to a Miami Herald article in 1985, the changes were rapid. Said in the last five years, the police have taken important steps to bring officers closer to the black communities that make up one-fifth of Dade County's population and one-quarter of Miami's to promote blacks to positions of leadership and to crack down on officers who too frequently resort to force. Five years ago, they came in here like big white bullies with their guns and nightsticks, said Liberty resident Annie Love, who heads the Tenants Association in the Scott Housing Project. Now they don't come in with that bully attitude. They're worth our taxpayer dollars. So as I referenced earlier, the McDuffie murder was not an isolated incident. In January of 1979, Willie Thomas Jones, a white state trooper, had sexually molested an 11-year-old black girl. Seven months later, Jones did not contest the charge, right? Guilty as charged. And he got zero jail time, zero. He got three years probation. Can you imagine if someone molested your 11-year-old, then pled guilty, and then was essentially just told, hey, bud, Oh, man, don't do not do that, okay? Come on. God, not cool, dude. Jeez, don't do not do that, right? Many black residents felt that if he'd molested a white girl, he would have gotten in a lot more trouble, and, and they probably weren't wrong. In, in February of 1979, Dade detectives mistakenly served a search warrant at the home of a black school teacher, Nathaniel Lafleur, who was seriously injured in a struggle with them, and a grand jury did not indict the officers for any criminal wrongdoing. Nathaniel basically got a, hey man, sorry about uh, breaking into your house and beating the fuck out of you. Everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> you know, shit happens. Understandably, he was not happy. 
because he was black and the officers were white. This further fuels local racial tension. In September of 79, an off-duty, uh, I'm probably going to mess this word up, he, he, Halea, a lot of little suburbs here, uh, police officer, it's H-I-A-L-E-A-H, uh, Haile, uh, Haile police officer working as a security guard and sh- uh, shot and killed Randy Heath, a 22-year-old uh, black man. Heath's sister, Teresa, said her brother had pulled behind a warehouse to go urinate where no one could see him. Officer Larry Shockley thought he was going to try and burglarize the building and uh, pulled a gun on him. Heath did not resist, put his hands against the wall, as Officer Shockley instructed, and initially, Shockley said he resisted arrest, but he failed a lie detector and then admitted to shooting the unarmed Heath in the back while his hands were against the wall and killing him. Teresa also saw Shockley shoot her brother. She saw this happen. Uh, Shockley placed his cocked pistol against the back of Heath's head and then fired his weapon, right? Said he said it accidentally went off. And a white grand jury ruled that Heath's death was negligent, not criminal, and Officer Shockley free to go. So like I said, racial tensions high in Miami. Uh, there was segregation. There were high levels of poverty in the black areas of town. There were additional cases I didn't mention here, numerous. This was the atmosphere that Yahweh Ben Yahweh started his racist cult in. Many local black residents were more than ready to hear a local pastor tell them that they were God's chosen people and that the white man was evil, that they were white devils and the source of all the problems. Right At this time in the Miami area, fuck the white devils was an easy message to sell in many a black neighborhood. So now I think it's easy to see how Miami in the late 70s and 80s was a good place to kick off a black supremacist cult. Numerous incidents had led many local black residents to believe that white America did not give a fuck about them. Now let's look into two religious sects that I mentioned earlier that Hulan Mitchell Jr., a.k.a. Yahweh Ben Yahweh, based his own racist screed off of, the Nation of Islam and the Black Hebrew Israelites. Two organizations that have been around for quite some time. Uh, two organizations that were both pretty damn racist. Uh, first, let's look into the radical teachings of the Nation of Islam. Nation of Islam is the name of a variety of religious organizations uh, in the 20th century America. A variety, a variety of organizations would adopt the same exact name. Uh, all of them are super racist. Woven, in, woven into their core ideology is the notion of a black supremacy, the notion that God created black meat sacks as superior to white meat sacks. The Nation of Islam did start out as a single group. It began as an African-American-centric religious movement an organization founded in 1930 by Wallace D. Fard. A little more on him in a second. Uh, and it was known for teachings that combined elements of traditional Islam with black American nationalist ideals. The nation promoted both racial unity and racial superiority, self-help, maintains, maintaining a uh, strict code of discipline amongst members. Islam had been in America for, uh, you know, to some extent since the nation's founding. Founding father and third president Thomas Jefferson actually owned a copy of the Quran. Uh, the religion was first brought to the United States by African Muslim slaves. It retained a very minuscule presence in the country throughout the 19th century as the religion was not practiced, or I'm sorry, uh, up until the uh, 20th century, as the religion was not practiced by slave owners during the years before the Civil War. And the overwhelming majority of slaves were forced to Christianity. In the years following the Civil War, so in the late 19th century, immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East made it to America, and the first actual traditional mosques were built in Highland Park, Michigan, uh, Chicago, Illinois, and Cedar Rapids, Iowa in the first decades of the 20th century. A mosque replica had been built in 1893 for Chicago's World Columbian Exhibition, but this was just an exhibit. At the beginning of the 20th century, Islam really began to have a real presence in America, initially as a result of the efforts of, this is a crazy word that I could not find any pronunciation for anywhere, uh, Ahmadiyya, uh, A-H-M-A-D-I with a 
slash over it, Y-A-A, or Y-A-H. So your guys as good as mine. The Am- Amad, 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 Amadiya, the Amadiya movement, an unorthodox sect founded in India by Mirza Gulam Ahmad and of uh, Shaikh, I don't know, some of these people are pretty obscure uh, as far as YouTube goes. Uh, Ahmed uh, Faisal, uh, the Moroccan-born leader of the independent black Muslim movement. And in uh, thir- 1913, Muslim teachings were tied to black nationalism by noble Drew Ali. That I, I can fucking knock that out of the park. Drew Ali. Got it. Uh, originally born as Timothy Drew, founded the Moorish Science Temple of America in Newark, New Jersey in 1913. Uh, noble Drew, man, sweet name addition. I should try getting people to refer to me as Noble Dan. No one points a finger at Noble Dan. You know, dude, who farted? I don't know who did it, but I know that Noble Dan did not do it. Noble Dan wouldn't do something like that. Anyway, Noble Drew produced a new sacred text, the Holy Quran. It bears little resemblance to the actual Quran, was based on Drew's limited knowledge of Islam and on spiritualist teachings. Noble Drew was a super charismatic, bit of a nut. He considered himself a prophet Said he once met a high priest in Egypt who taught him some magic, like real magic, and he uh, ended up later taking several wives for himself. He would eventually relocate to the Midwest and amass thousands of followers and have 17 temples built called Moorish Science Temples, the real kind of first Islamic movement in America. And then he would die in 1929 at the age of 43. Uh, One of his students, we think his origins are impossible to verify uh, verify with 100% certainty, even by his most uh, studious biographers, was uh, Wallace D. Fard, uh, Wally Fard Muhammad, uh, the man who had found the first nation of Islam in America. In 1930, claiming that he was noble Drew Ali reincarnated, Fard basically showed up out of nowhere and founded the nation of Islam in Detroit, Michigan, designated his able assistant, Elijah Muhammad, originally Elijah Poole, to establish the nation's second center in Chicago. And in 1934, this dude just vanished as mysteriously as he arrived. No one really knows what this guy did prior to 1930 or where the hell he went in 1934. He just showed up out of nowhere, claimed he'd study at Noble Drew's Morris Science Temple in New Jersey, claimed he was the uh, reincarnation of the recently deceased Drew, founded the Nation of Islam, and then just disappeared like a ghost. Uh, Declassified FBI files showed that the FBI looked for this guy for decades, couldn't find him, could never figure out exactly for sure who the hell he was. Uh, here's what they think. This is a weird backstory. A Washington Post journalist put together using FBI information. They think that Fard originally used the name Fred Dodd, married a woman named Pearl Allen in Multnomah County, Oregon, on May 9th, 1914, with their first child, a son, born the next year. Then he abandoned his family in 1916, as prophets often do. And then he moved to Los Angeles using the name Wally Dodd Ford. A World War I draft registration card for Wally Dodd Ford from 1917 indicated that that man lived in Los Angeles, was not married, was a restaurant owner, and reported that he was born in Afghanistan on February 26, 1893. And on the draft card, Ford uh, is written in parentheses, no reasons given. At the bottom of the card, he signs his name, Wally Dodd Ford. 1920, Ford still lived in Los Angeles as a 26-year-old Wally D. Ford with a 25-year-old wife, Hazel. In the 1920 census, his race is reported as white. His occupation as proprietor of a restaurant and his place of birth now as New Zealand. A marriage certificate dated June 5th, 1924 was issued to one Wally Dodd Ford and Carmen Trevino in Orange County, California. Ford reported he was a cook, 26 years old, born in Oregon, but living in Los Angeles. So weird little piece of history here. 
the man who founded the, uh, you know, exclusively black nation of Islam, at least initially it was exclusively black. I, I imagine it still is, uh, may have had zero African blood in him. And the few photos that do exist of this dude, he does not look African-American to me at all. He looks Afghani, uh, maybe like Pakistani, like from that part of the world and, and possibly like, um, uh, yeah, from like New Zealand, you know, uh, you know, from uh, uh, like Aboriginal, uh, from Australia, like that part of the world. So maybe that's why he disappeared. Maybe people were onto him. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, after Fard vanishes, Elijah teaches that Fard was a prophet in the Muslim sense and a savior in the Christian sense in the very presence of Allah. Fard's successor, Elijah Muhammad, really gets the nation of Islam humming along. He provides what Fard lacked, strong leadership and a coherent theology. His teachings included many of the basic tenets of Islam, including monotheism, submission to Allah, strong family life. These tenets promoted in the nation's uh, parochial schools. Elisha uh, also borrowed from traditional Islamic behavioral practices, including the refusal to eat pork or use tobacco, alcohol, or illicit drugs. And he, uh, well, and, and, and he also taught that the white man was a devil. There is that. He literally called white people white devils. So he was a, he was a teensy bit super racist. And he, and he made up all kinds of weird shit. Elijah Muhammad believed that the white race, that's what he taught his followers, the white race was created by Yakub, who was a black scientist, that Allah had allowed this devilish race to hold power for 6,000 years. Like he literally just made all this up. This is fucking nonsense. He just, you know, God told him all this in a vision. Uh, that's, what, that's what I need to start doing here. Anytime you guys disagree with me, I'm going to remind you that I didn't even, uh, you know, it's not up for debate. I didn't research what you disagreed about. God told it to me. In a fucking vision, so shut the fuck up. God told me to tell you to shut up. Just accept it. Hail Nimrod. Why Nimrod? Why do these infidels protest my holy word? Really chaps my holy ass when they do that. Uh, but anyway, Muhammad believed that Whitey's time was going to be up in 1914. The 20th century was when black people would rise to power in America and suppress whitey. Uh, he pushed a plan of separatism and black nationalism, a program of economic self-sufficiency, the development of black-owned businesses, a demand for the creation of a separate black nation. He wanted carved out of the states of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. He encouraged his followers to drop their quote-unquote slave names in favor of Muslim names, or in many cases, an X, signifying that they had lost their identities in slavery and did not know their true names. And that part makes sense to me. I logically get the anger over slavery and cultural identity destruction. I mean, too bad it had to take, uh, you know, uh, the white man is the devil kind of turn. And there was a made up dude named Yakub making, making you know, white people as part of some 6,000 year old ex experiment mixed into all this kind of, uh, you know, message. But I, but I get the anger oh, as much as I can without having, uh, you know, being part of that culture. When World War II broke out, Elijah Muhammad and many of his followers went to jail for refusing to serve in the military, and the movement was paralyzed for a couple of years without uh, its leadership. Uh, the Nation of Islam rebounded in the 1950s after a young, charismatic leader, Malcolm Little, better known as Malcolm X, took over the New York Temple. While in prison in Boston for burglary from 1946 to 1952, Little joined the Nation of Islam. He was influenced by his brother, Reginald, who had become a member in Detroit. Malcolm X brought many into the movement in the late 50s and early 60s. He increased membership dramatically, by one estimate, from 500 all the way to 25,000, uh, and another estimate from 1,200 to 50,000, and by a final estimate, uh, increased up to 75,000 members. And Malcolm X, whose father was officially killed in a streetcar accident, was actually likely killed by white supremacists. And Malcolm would claim that racist white people killed four of his uncles as well, and he, uh, for mu much of his life, right up until the end, hated white people, preached a message of black separatism, nationalism, and supremacy, and also referred to white people as white devils. 
And then Malcolm became disillusioned with the nation of Islam following rumors of Elijah having affairs with numerous young nation secretaries, rumors he believed very much to be true. In 1961, there was a series of violent clashes between nation of Islam members and the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, uh, resulting in LAPD officers shooting and killing some Islam or nation of Islam members. And Malcolm didn't think Elijah was strong enough in his reaction to this. He didn't denounce it to, you know, as much as he thought he should, didn't protest it. And then when JFK was assassinated, Malcolm X said it was a case of the chickens coming home to roost, said he was glad JFK was killed and he was banned from preaching by the nation of Islam after that for 90 days. And then he departed soon after that to form his own movement. And then before he could fully articulate the new views of his new movement, he was murdered. Beginning in 1964, he spoke publicly and numerously about the nation of Islam wanting him dead. He feared they would kill him. On February 19th, 1965, he told an interviewer that nation of Islam members were actively trying to kill him. And then while he prepared a speech on February 21st in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom, a man in the crowd rushed forward, shot him in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun, and then two other guys charged him firing semi-automatic handguns, and he ended up with 21 gunshot wounds to the chest, uh, left shoulder, arms, and legs. And uh, we'll have to suck Malcolm X uh, properly someday. He did denounce his earlier racist views before his death, as I mentioned, in a letter from Mecca, Saudi Arabia, to a friend in New York months before his death. Uh, Malcolm said he had embraced the brotherhood of man and, quote, shall never rest until I have undone the harm I did to so many well-meaning, innocent Negroes who, through my own evangelistic zeal, now believe in Elijah Muhammad even more fanatically and more blindly than I did. For 12 long years, I lived with the narrow-minded confines of the straitjacket world created by my strong belief that Elijah Muhammad was a messenger direct from God himself and my faith in what I now see to be a pseudo-religious philosophy that he preaches. But as then, uh, but as his then most faithful disciple, I represented and defended him at all levels and in most instances, even beyond the level of intellect and reason. This religion recognizes all men as brothers. And now he's talking about you know Islam in general, not as about Elijah. It accepts all human beings as equal before God and as equal members in the human family of mankind. I totally reject Elijah Muhammad's racist philosophy, which he has labeled Islam only to fool and misuse gullible people as he fooled and misused me. But I blame only myself and for no one else for the fool that I was and no one else for the fool that I was and the harm that my evangel- evangelic foolishness in his behalf has done to others. For the decade following Malcolm's death, the remaining decade of Elijah Muhammad's life, the Nation of Islam movement was increasingly plagued by violence between members and former members. In 1973, for example, nation members invaded the Hanafi Muslim Center in Washington, D.C., founded by Hamas Abdul Khalis, a former nation leader, attacked his family, killed his children, and left his wife paralyzed. Elijah Muhammad left the movement to his son, Wallace, who assumed leadership of the nation upon Elijah's death in 1975, later took the name Warath Dean Muhammad. Wallace, who'd been deeply influenced by Malcolm X and Orthodox Islam, soon initiated a transformation of the nation, changing its name to the world community of all Islam in the West, and again in 1978 to the American Muslim Mission, and it gradually dropped any racial and nationalistic doctrines, as well as a belief in Fard as Allah. These changes culminated in 1985 with Wallace's formal resignation as head of the American Muslim Mission and his disillusion of the organization. The majority of former members followed him into the larger Muslim community, and he remained a widely respected leader there. The move towards orthodoxy was rejected 
by some former members, including Elijah Muhammad's brother, John Muhammad, and national leader, Silas Muhammad. They formed two new organizations, both called the Nation of Islam, and they continued the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And then there is Louis Farrakhan, originally Louis Eugene Walcott, the successor of Malcolm X as the leader of the New York Temple and the nation's most prominent spokesman, most well-known member at the time of Elijah Muhammad's death. Farrakhan disagreed with Muhammad's changes. In 1978, he left to found a third nation of Islam. And Farrakhan's movement went on to become the most prominent. A talented orator, Farrakhan began his organization with only a few thousand adherents, but soon reestablished a national movement. He published Elijah Muhammad's book, started a periodical, The Final Call, eventually purchased Elijah Muhammad's former mosque in Chicago, refurbished it as the new headquarters of the Nation of Islam. He also expanded the movement internationally, opening centers in England and Ghana. He gained notice outside the African-American community in 1984 when he aligned himself with the U.S. presidential campaign of Jesse Jackson, though he was criticized for anti-Semitic remarks that included an attack on antebellum Jewish slaveholders. And Farrakhan's still around. He's 86 years old, and he's a piece of shit. Uh, he, he is, as he has always been, a super fucking racist, uh, especially not a big fan of the Jews. In 2018, he tweeted, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm an anti-termite. And just last February, in a speech in Chicago, he said, pedophilia and sexual perversion institutionalized in Hollywood and the entertainment industries can be traced to Talmudic principles and Jewish influence, satanic influence under the name of the Jew. He also hates homosexuality, and he also blames white people for creating homosexuality. In a 2018 speech, he said, Elijah Muhammad came to save us from the sins of white people that have been imposed on us since we have been under their rule. We didn't have homosexuality in Africa. It's not our tradition. This guy just doesn't understand how life works. (laughs) Like it's a weird tradition the Europeans started. Ah, man, I know none of us want to do this. Let's just, hey guys, let's start putting our wieners in each other's butts. And in our mouth, and let's just stay away from women, right? I don't, but I don't like that. But I'm not, but I'm attracted to women. Doesn't matter. It's gonna be a new fun tradition. We're gonna do. We're gonna, man. We're gonna fuck with Africans. <laughs> they're gonna, they're not gonna see this coming. Oh gosh, dang! Uh, back in 2000, at another speech, he summed up his view of white people, saying, "White people are potential humans. They just haven't evolved yet." So he's a, he's a sweet dude. Uh, Farrakhan steadily gained nationwide support amongst a portion of America's black community for his encouragement of African-American businesses and his efforts to reduce drug abuse and poverty and all that stuff is great. Just wish he wasn't super racist. Uh, By the 1990s, he'd emerged as a prominent African-American leader uh, demonstrated by the success in 1995 of the Million Man March in Washington, D.C., which he did help organize. An estimated 10,000 to 50,000 people are thought to be current members of Farrakhan's Nation of Islam. And if I ever meet any, I'm gonna, man, probably not be a big fan. Because uh, their core beliefs, yeah, don't care for it. Uh, without the Nation of Islam, it would have been much harder for Yahweh ben Yahweh to form his cult. Like David Koresh built his cult by twisting the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church, Yahweh ben Yahweh, a.k.a. Hulan Mitchell Jr., able to build his cult out of the teachings of the Nation of Islam and also out of the teachings of the black Hebrew Israelites as well, especially towards the end of his cult evolution. So let's talk about the black Hebrew Israelites, the BHI the original African-Hebrew-Israelite nation of Jerusalem, uh, founded by various leaders, comprised of a number of different sects. And I feel like these, these guys, are like, if like, <laughs> like the nation of Islam is racist. Like there's, you know, it's, there's, there's racist core ideology there, but it's not like the main thrust of it, where I feel like the, the black Hebrew-Israelites, like they're, they've taken it to the next level. They're more extreme. 
They're just aggressively racist. Uh, black Hebrew Israelites, an umbrella term for various religious sects and congregations that believe the people of color, usually African-Americans, are descendants of a lost tribe of ancient Israelites. They have no primary leader today, nor no central headquarters, pretty fringy. In the late 19th, early 20th century, certain African-Americans began to not only identify spiritually with the ancient Israelites, but also to claim that they were their direct physical descendants. The oldest surviving sect originated in Lawrence, Kansas in 1896, founded by William Crowdy, called the Church of God and Saints of Christ. Uh, today, there are several uh, church, different Church of God and Saints of Christ congregations, and they teach a range of different beliefs. It's not a very coherent organization. Some churches teach only Jewish beliefs. Some uh, churches teach uh, only Jew, uh, uh, Christian beliefs and some kind of a, a mashup of both. In the early 60s, Chicago steelworker Ben Carter changed his name to Ben Ami. And in 1966, said he had a vision from Archangel Gabriel uh, who told him to take his people, African-American people, to the Holy Land of Israel, for they were the true Jews. And in 1967, Ben and roughly 350 of his followers bounced and made it to Liberia. They formed a religious community, a.k.a. cult compound there. Then in 1969, after another vision, he and his group headed for Israel. Uh, BHI groups such as Ben's group have, have a very weird relationship with Judaism. They think of themselves as the true Jews, God's real chosen tribe, but they don't follow the traditional teachings of Judaism. Instead, as one theological expert explains, they, quote, creatively manipulate traditions and ideas gleaned from a wide range of sources. Pentecostal Christianity, British Anglo-Israelite movement, Freemasonry, mind power, theosophy, Judaism, the occult, the African-American Christianity's deep association with Hebrews of the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's just like a more, <laughs> it's just pretty kind of, it's just like they took a little bit of this, took a little of that. It's, it's, it's nonsense. And while most BHI groups do not consider Jews to be true descendants of Hebrew Israelites, they also do not consider all people of color to be part of the lost tribe either. As one BHI website explains, Israel is just one black nation that exists among many. The Egyptians, Canaanites, Ethiopians, Babylonians, etc. were black skinned, but they were not Israelites. To say all black skinned people are Israelites is like saying all Asians are Chinese, all Europeans are French. I hate it when they take like a true thing like that and then twist it. That's true. There's many different tribes uh, in Africa, uh, but but none of the, but none of those tribes. There's no historical evidence that none of, that any of those tribes were like the the original uh, Jewish people of the Bible. Like the, every, every piece of evidence says it's Middle Eastern. Uh, man, God God works in extra mysterious ways with these fellas. It's like uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What do you believe? Uh, complicated. It's, it's super complicated. Uh, beliefs vary wildly from one congregation to the next. Uh, there is one thing that all the groups have in common and they're, it's they're fucking crazy. <laughs> I try to be respectful to religious, uh, different religions and religious leaders, but holy shit, I also got to be honest. I mean, I, I think every single religion on earth has a lot of, huh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's true, kind of element in it. You know, to me, they all exist on a spectrum ranging from, not my belief, but the central message, you know, is uh, really positive and so good for them for spreading good morality and hope to people. To, uh, well, well that, that, that seems to be a, a bunch of terrible, made-up, kind of wackadoodle horseshit. And then to the very end of, uh, nope, fuck that noise. And the black Hebrew Israelites, for me, uh, strongly fall into the category of, nope, fuck that noise. They're just a blatant hate, hate group masquerading as a, as a religion. One belief that seems to remain consistent from congregation to the next is, fuck the Jews. A uh, lot of white devil talk. Heidi Byrich the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center says that black Hebrews call Jews, quote, devilish imposters or devils because they think of themselves 
as the true Israelites. And they think that the Jewish people, who we think, now I'm saying who we think of, no, who are the Jewish people? It's like I'm falling into their crazy. They think these people are just imposters that have been pu- pushing out this lie for, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, there's approximately 50,000 self-identifying black Hebrew Israelites around the world. Uh, here are some of their core beliefs. They, they teach that certain groups of black people are descendants of the Israelites, as I said, current Jews of Israel today, not true descendants. Uh, many of these groups also assert that white people are literal agents of Satan. Uh, Jewish people are liars and false worshipers of God. Uh, some blacks are the true chosen people, and they are racially superior to other black people and, you know, far superior to all other ethnicities. Uh, some some of BHI, you know, uh, members ad- adhere to the Talmud, the Jewish collection of teachings, laws, and interpretations based on Genesis through Deuteronomy. Others do not. They believe God's true name is Yah, as found in Psalm 68.4 of the King James Bible. In a 1973 article for Christianity Today, historian James Tinney classified members of this organization as falling into three groups. There's the black Jews who maintain a Christological perspective and adopt Jewish rituals. There's the black Hebrews, more traditional in their practice of Judaism. And, and then the segment that I put into the, the you know, uh, nope, fuck that noise category, the black Israelites who are very nationalistic and the furthest from traditional Judaism and, and the most hateful. Uh, many black uh, Hebrew Israelites also believe in polygamy, you know, taking multiple wives, uh, no birth control. That's forbidden. No condoms, no pills, certainly no abortion. Uh, leaders also get to decide who gets to marry. Uh, they get to decide whether marriage annulments will be permitted. They perform wedding ceremonies. Many black Hebrew Israelites also vegans, avoiding the consumption of meat, dairy, eggs, and sugar. I guess that one's a positive. I mean, I'm certainly no vegan, but if you can pull it off and not be sad and hungry all the time, good for you. And then members adopt Hebrew names to replace names they believe could be derived from slavery. Man, so many rules. So many rules. Oh, man, you got to hate these guys. You got to love these folks. You can't use birth control. You have to get special permission to marry. You, You can't eat, you know, cheese. So many others I'm not even mentioning here. What what a bummer of a God to worship. A God who loves so many rules, so many bylaws. Like like God is some annoying hall monitor, just all grown up. I just picture this kind of God just sitting at a big desk, right? He's got so many papers and books and he's he's resting his head in his God hands, just super over it. Just like, oh, just writing out more rules all the time, you know, just God law, (sighs) 8657-998765-3, version 21. God forbiddeth the eating of more than 10 peanut butter-filled pretzel bites on any day that ends in an odd number on the Gregorian calendar. It annoyeth God, too muchest, tastiest, snacketh, eating, grindeth, goddess, ears, gears, you know, and then peanut butter pretzel bites are surprisingly high in sodium, which is badeth for your blood pressureeth. So that's, you know, just can't have that. He puts that in his fucking stack of just like new law. God lied, 657-998-765-4, version 29. God forbiddeth masturbating with your dominant hand more than three times a day uh, on any day other than Saturday. On a Saturday, uh, thou may use the dominant hand to stroke or DJ or flick or tallywhack as many times as one is able without breaking thy skin. <sighs> masturbating past the point of skin breakage. Always forbidden, so saith the Lord. Stacks that over there. Why do so many weirdos, uh, you know, bog down spirituality with so many rules? Must make trying to follow these religions feel like just doing your fucking taxes. Uh, some of these BHI extremists even believe in instigating a race war, so that's fun. BHI expert John Jackson from the University of Pennsylvania explains some of their uh, some of their more radical beliefs, saying the ultimate goal is to bring about a sort of race war that will cleanse the planet and bring Jesus back. They say we're doing all this stuff, we're being as provocative as we are on the street corner. 
because we're really trying to, you know, uh, get this ultimate clash between good and evil, between God's chosen people and the damned and the imposters so that we can bring about the, the second coming in a new world, Jackson said. And when he mentions um, street corners there, in certain cities like like in New York and LA, you can find little groups of uh, BHI, you know, members. They tend to dress in robes. Uh, they're always all black. And they're generally like chanting hateful shit and trying to provoke people. Like they're just, they're fucking stupid assholes. And <laughs> it's, it's nonsense. And, and, and the black is Hebrew Israelites are once led by Ben, Emi, Ben, right? Israel, the ones that showed up in Israel in 1969, as I said earlier, they started a community settlement in Demona. Dimona, and this is, oh my God, this is so weird. <laughs> they, <laughs> they make these claims of Jewish heritage. They, they get over to Jerusalem or they get over to Israel and Israeli law officers citizenship for all Jews throughout the world. But the black Hebrew Israelites, they say that they are Jewish people, but there's no like evidence for this. They can't prove it. You know, it's just, it's nonsense. And so after a bunch of investigations, the chief rabbinate of Israel decides that, you know, guys, you guys are not actually Jewish and you're not entitled to citizenship. I, I mean, they have like this whole, this whole fucking thing that's gone on over the, in, their, in their country for decades. It's so, it's, it's truly like, like, it's like if a bunch of people showed up in America from any other part of the world and demanded citizenship because they claim that God told them that they were the real Americans, you know, like some, some uh, immigration officials, like you guys, you guys, we can't give you citizenship. You're not American. You are Ukrainian. It says so right here on your birth records, gold, gold wrote new certificate. You say we live in America many thousand years ago. We threw we true Americans, you imposter. Yeah, guys, I can't just fucking, what? I can't type something up because you, you made it up and, and make it legal. Bro, come on, bro, just sign it. Tell me, just come on, sign it. Listen, if you sign it, I won't kick you out of America. When we take over as true Americans, you fake infidel imposter. Like, this is that insane. The black Hebrew Israelites, they enter Israel with temporary visas and they get them periodically renewed. And so the government, uh, <laughs> you know, while the government actually considers their claims of citizenship, instead of just saying, get the fuck out of here, like they're being so nice, these guys, they, they, they allow them to live, work and receive healthcare in Israel. They, they give loans to them so they, their basic needs can be met. However, their non-citizen status does not provide for education for children, tax exemptions, loans for permanent settlements that are available to Jewish immigrants. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the Israeli government uh, does not take steps to deport them uh, also does not offer them full citizenship. And so this leads to, to heated debates and discussions in the country. The black Hebrew Israelites could, you know, actually could obtain full citizenship if they would just formally convert to actual Judaism, but they don't want to do that because they, they don't like the Jewish people. It's the most nonsensical. Meanwhile, the black Hebrew Israelites uh, population of Demona starts to really grow. It's aided by high birth rates among the members and more members are entering Israel. Some black Hebrew Israelites frustrated by their lack of citizenship denounce Israel, openly adopt anti-Semitic rhetoric, arguing that the white Jews are frauds and it's their country. And the black Hebrew Israelites are the only real Jews there. And then critics in Israel label uh, them a cult, which they fucking are. And that pisses off the group. And then critics are arguing to have them tossed out of the country. Proposals are tossed about for their deportation. Those are met with hunger strikes in Demona. And now people are get, you know, getting worked up in other parts of the you know, country because these kids could be dying because of the hunger strikes. It's getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> uh, these fucking lunatics, they come into the country under delusional pretenses. They shit on the government that is taking care of them, then stage protests when residents want them to leave. This is comparable. Imagine if five crazy homeless people camped out in your backyard and out of the goodness of your heart, 
You give them blankets. You give them food. You allow them to remain. And then they have kids. Like they're, they're there for a long time. And then you help feed their kids. And then eventually when you're like, guys, guys, it's been like, it's been like 30 years. <laughs> I feel like I've really gone above and beyond to try and take care of you and your family. But it's, it's, my, it's my property and I'd really like you to leave. And then they refuse to leave. And then they start singing songs in your backyard about how you're a piece of shit. We won't leave the yard. You don't hold all the cards. Thank you for the food and stuff. But now we hope you die and stuff. The U.S. Congress, some African-American leaders in the U.S. Uh, argue in favor of the black Hebrew Israelites, continued residents in Israel. They send funds, including subsidies provided by Congress to help establish a school for them. Uh, not sure what their true rationale was here. I, I think it's just like, we don't want those crazies back back here. Just please, please deal with them. In 1990, the Black Hebrew Israelites and the Israeli Ministry of the Interior reached an agreement. The Black Hebrew Israelites uh, would be granted temporary residency status, which makes them eligible for financial support from the Israeli government. Uh, the Israeli government later uh, also agrees to help build a permanent organic farming village for the group in the Negev region of Israel, where they continue to live and work to this day, uh, earning money through farming, a well-known choir, sewing, and a vegan uh, food factory and restaurants. This is how, this is just people eventually giving in to just, you know, uh, a large, a fairly large group of people who are just so fucking crazy that you, they can't be reasoned with. And eventually they're just like, fine, just fuck, okay, just stay there and shut the fuck up. Just have your farms, just stop. Also, uh, I should emphasize here that these extremists have nothing to do with thousands of black Jews and other Jews in, of color in the U.S. who are genuine members of the Jewish faith and not just maniacs. And there's other several active sects of black Hebrew Israelites, such as Sakari black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, they're San Diego-based, very anti-Semitic, very racist uh, fringe group whose followers believe that blacks, Hispanics, and American Indians are the true descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone else can get fucked. Uh, they believe naturally that white people are agents of Satan, uh, the Jewish people are liars, a lot of people hate the Jews, uh, false wor worshipers of God, and blacks are the one, you know, true chosen people. There's another sect of black Hebrew Israelites uh, in, it's called Black Hebrew Israelites is in Israel, United in Christ, long name. It's a New York-based group. The leader of this group is Nathaniel Ray, aka Bishop Nathaniel Ben Israel. This group's uh, mission is to spread the black Hebrew Israelite ideology to educate black individuals with their true place in society. They're committed to spreading this ideology globally and recruit as many black individuals as possible. They rely heavily on social media to promote their beliefs. Their Instagram account, I had to check it out. It is terrifying. <laughs> They're very angry and very crazy. Uh, they host public activities such as marches and Bible readings. They reject Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, specifically calling Jews the bastards that funded the slave trade. They blame Jews and other ethnicities for all social ills uh, that plague black individuals. They claim that acceptance of this ideology and God will free black people. And, you know, uh, Jews and white people worship the devil. And, uh, oh, and this is fun. They've added this. They teach their uh, followers that white people will uh, all become black people's slaves in heaven. So they're super, they're super cool. Um, and these are, the, these are the beliefs of the black Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite extremists. Just stupid and nonsensical and racist. And, <laughs> and I gotta say, as a white dude who's covered so many other white dudes who hate black people, it feels weirdly good to finally cover the other side of the coin, right? To cover some black people who are just as insanely racist and hate white people. It's not just white people. I say that all the time, but it's different to actually go over real groups who are out there currently, who are aggressively racist, right? Racism and stupidity comes in all colors. Uh, any meat sack can be racist and ignorant. 
And these belief systems, the Nation of Islam and, and the Black Hebrew Israelite belief system, man, they, they, they provide the jumping off point for Yahweh ben Yahweh. He takes things even further uh, to kick off his nonsense. He, he builds his beliefs on the backs uh, of these beliefs. Now, before we dive into, we're almost there into Yahweh ben Yahweh's timeline, let's take a good look into the life of his craziest, most violent follower so we don't have to break out of the timeline when he shows up later to explain who he is. Robert Rozier. Robert Rozier, an American serial killer who admitted to killing seven people to please Yahweh ben Yahweh. We mentioned him way back in our O.J. Simpson suck, suck 149, as the most prolific known murderer in NFL history. At six foot three and nearly 300 pounds by the time he met up with ben Yahweh, uh, he you know, became an enforcer or death angel for the nation of Yahweh. Rozier, the most controversial known member of the group uh, due to the murders he committed and also due to his testimony that had a huge hand in bringing down the organization later on. Born in Anchorage, Alaska in 1955, Rozier and his family made it to California when he was a kid, attended uh, Cordova High School in Rancho Cordova, just east of Sacramento, where he tore shit up on the football field. He went on to become a star football player at UC Berkeley, where he played defensive end. In 1979, he was drafted by the St. Louis Rams in the ninth round with a 228th pick. And then number 75 would play six games at a game weight of 240 pounds. According to some of his former teammates, he was called Line Bob Rozier behind his back, and he was not well-liked. After just six games for the Rams, he was released allegedly for drug-related issues. He quickly got a job in the Canadian Football League, playing for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And then he played for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders that same season. That didn't work out either. In 1980, he made it onto the Oakland Raiders, and then he was cut there after two weeks, two weeks, again, for uh, supposedly drug-related issues. People who knew him said it was mainly drug use that plagued his professional career. It was the late 70s, early 80s, and the dude liked his nose candy. And cocaine does not have a great reputation for enhancing uh, one's football-related abilities. After being cut from the Raider squad, Rozier drifted around the country, drifted around the U.S., committing various petty crimes revolving around theft for several years and fraud uh, before joining, joining Yahweh ben Yahweh's black supremacist Hebrew-Israelite splinter group in either late 1981 or early 1982. Shortly after a stint for the Raiders, Canadian authorities began investigating $50,000 worth of bad checks that he had passed in his CFL days. As a new recruit, Rozier would adopt the name of Nariah Israel, or Child of God, and he allegedly continued with his drug use. According to many members, he caused problems within the nation of Yahweh group, but he was kept around because Yahweh ben Yahweh had plans for him, saw his value. In November of 1986, 31-year-old Rozier would be arrested on multiple murder charges in Miami, linked with the October 30th shooting deaths of Rudolph Rosard and Anthony Brown. Detectives reported that Rozier's fingerprints had been found at the scene of two random murders where transients were killed as well, their ears sliced off, and a press release linked him with at least five other murders in Miami that had been carried out in a similar way. He carried out the murders on Ben Yahweh's orders, is what he said. He would later tell a jury, we did everything from driving a bus to killing someone if necessary, beating, hanging, burning, stoning, decapitation. Lying Bob would become the Fed's prime witness against the nation of Yahweh. He'd get 22 years in prison instead of the death penalty or life for the murders due to his testimony against Yahweh ben Yahweh. And he would be paroled after just seven years, one year per murder. Upon release in early 1996, 41-year-old Rozier was placed in the witness protection program. And this murderer, now just living free under the alias Robert Ramses, or Ramsey, uh, uh, his life financed by U.S. taxpayer money. He's out there. According to a lawyer in the criminal case against the nation of Yahweh, Rozier tested off the charts as a psychopath, scoring 26 out of 27 on a psychopath test they administered. 
This young, prison-strong, murderous, former NFL defensive end, psychopath walking the streets. Luckily, he couldn't stay away from crime. Three years later, he'd get busted for writing more bad checks, and he'd be sent to prison for the rest of his life under the third strike law. Bob is currently serving a life sentence at the Mule Creek State Prison less than an hour from downtown Sacramento, just 45 minutes from his old high school. I doubt any of his old buddies are making a lot of time to come see him. Okay, so now we've learned a little bit about the insane ideologies that probably shaped the mind of Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Uh, We've gotten a real feel for the racial tensions that existed in Miami, the city he founded, his racist Colton, when he did that, a city where it was probably pretty easy to sell a message of fuck those white devils, right? And we've met one of his most prized disciples. Now we're going to get to the the juicy stuff. It's already been interesting, but this next part, oh oh man. Uh, Now let's see the man himself via this episode's time stuck timeline right after a quick sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now it's time for that timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. On October 27th, 1935, Hulan Mitchell Jr. is born the first of 15 children in the tiny wheat farming town of Kingfisher, Oklahoma. They have 14 little brothers and sisters. No, thank you. No wonder he'd become a maniac. Um, Back to Oklahoma, Kingfisher is 50 miles northeast of downtown Oklahoma City, 38 miles due south of Enid, and it's the birthplace of Sam Walton, founder of Walmart. I think I've heard of that guy. I think he founded Sam's Club as well. Uh, Kingfisher, also the birthplace of Raymond A. Young, who founded TG&Y Five and Dime Stores in 1935, uh, a chain that had 1,000 stores in 29 states at its peak. Bought out in 1985 by the McCrory's Five and Dime chain that completely went bankrupt by 2002. Just weird that one little town will be the birthplace of two huge retail chain founders and one super crazy cult leader. Uh, Hulan was born into a family affiliated with the Antioch Church of God in Christ in Enid, Oklahoma. His father, Hulan Mitchell Sr., was the minister, and his mother, Pearl Mitchell, was the pianist. And this branch of Christianity is similar to uh, the Pentecostal branch. They believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, very uh, fire and brimstone focused, a lot, of, a lot of speaking in tongues. I went to the official church website today, and the uh, What Do We Believe section talks a lot about divine healing, the second coming, and demons. They're on the extreme end of Christian beliefs. And in uh, this is 2020. I can only imagine Hulan, uh, or yeah, Hulan grew up uh, hearing a lot about the devil. Devil's all around. Devil's going to get his soul. Random trivia about Hulan's family. His younger sister, Leona Mitchell, born 14 years after he was, almost to the day, would go on to become a famous operatic soprano. Leona is in the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame, the Oklahoma African-American Hall of Fame, a lot of other Hall of Fames. She's a Grammy winner. 
You're given a bunch of honorary music doctorates from prestigious musical academies and universities. She sang for a time in Paris, and the critics there loved her, calling her the toast of Paris. She sang as the lead soprano for the Metropolitan Opera in Manhattan for 18 seasons. And I don't know shit about opera. I've never thought, man, I should listen to more opera. Or, man, I sure do love, do love to go to the opera. I've never thought that a single time in my whole life. I've never had sophisticated tastes. But 18 seasons as the lead in New York City. Sounds like a huge honor. I listened to a little bit of one of her performances. And I, honestly, I had to turn, off, turn it off after a few seconds. I, I forgot how much I actually aggressively dislike opera music. But beautiful voice. And she's won about a thousand awards. And she must have been humiliated by her brother, Hulan. I doubt she brought him up much at parties. Oh, you're, oh, you're a pastor. My, my brother's a pastor, kind of. He's a, a cult leader. I, <laughs> I'd introduce you to, but you're white. And he would rather kill you and literally cut your ear off than talk to you. Anyway, uh, wh where do you preach? Uh, Leona Hulan Jr.'s dad was a preacher, as I mentioned. And Hulan Mitchell Sr. gave passionate services, complete with ecstatic dancing, complete with a lot of speaking in tongues. Apparently, he was ridiculed by many of the town's residents who were mainly Baptists. Local kids would gawk through the windows to watch the antics of the, quote, holy rollers. And that's saying a lot. This is, the, this is in the heart of the Bible Belt in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. People thought this guy was too crazy about Jesus. That speaks uh, as far as, you know, to, to how far on the fringe he was. Young Hulan listened intently as his father told his flock that they would be rewarded in heaven for the religious and racial ostracism they endured on earth. One of his favorite Bible tales was the Exodus story in which Moses led the enslaved Israelites to freedom. Hulan's family, one of the few black families in town, was subjected to the full effect of Jim Crow South. You know, laws forced to go to colored schools, stores, and movie houses. Also, they were extremely poor. They were living just a few miles outside of the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression when Hulan was born. They just barely scraped by. You know, uh, Mitchell's father taking odd sales jobs, his mother working as a maid to make ends meet. At the end of the day, a uh, you know a black supremacist outlook is, is just as fucked up as a white supremacist outlook. Uh, I, I do say the motivation to have it for Hulan makes more sense to me than it did for recent suck subject uh, Timothy McVeigh, for example. You know, McVeigh wasn't raised as a minority around a majority population, openly looked down on him and despised him. Hulan was. He wasn't able to go to the same stores, wasn't able to use the same drinking fountains as the majority of the people in his town growing up. And because of his family's religion, you know, they were even more ostracized. You know, most of the town looked down on them racially and then, a, you know, a number of members of his own race looked down on them, you know, as far as uh, religious-wise. We don't know a whole hell of a lot about the details of Mitchell's uh, early childhood, but in a biography about the man, it was written that he was a moody child given to crying his eyes out one moment and howling with laughter the next. Uh, 1941, when Hulan was just five going on six, his family moved an hour north to Enid, Oklahoma, about 50,000 people. Although it was a larger town, black residents still marginalized. A lot more of the same, still segregated. Most locals still thought his dad was a nut. In high school, in the early 50s, Hulan and his pals had to pack their own food and water wherever they uh, tooled around in a beat-up junker because there wasn't many restaurants and diners that they were even allowed to walk in the door of. 1953, when Mitchell was drafted at the age of 18, he enlisted as an airman with the Vance Air Force, er, at, at the Vance Air Force Base, just four miles south of Enid. He married a, his teenage sweetheart, and the couple had four babies in four years, three girls and a boy. They were transferred to Air Force bases in California and Texas, and Mitchell became as devout a soldier as he had been a Pentecostal as a boy. Uh, as he quickly rose to the ranks to become an instructor, the military taught him to put his, uh, you know, I guess he wasn't quite a Pentecostal, but you know what I mean, that type of religion. Uh, the, the military taught him to put his country before all else, including religion, family, and self, but uh, eventually began to question this loyalty. Black soldiers had sacrificed their lives for their country throughout U.S. history, and yet across the country, black veterans legally barred from sitting at a lunch counter to enjoy a cup of coffee 
with their white brethren. He started to question everything, including his parents' passive acceptance of Jim Crow laws. He didn't want to wait until heaven to be compensated for his suffering in this life. In fact, he didn't see why he should suffer at all. By 1960, the U.S. civil rights movement was kicking into high gear. Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama bus in 1955. Martin Luther King Jr. is rallying pastors to, together to end you know, uh, segregation. In February of 1964, African-American college students in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Greensboro Four, refused to leave a Woolworths, whites-only lunch counter, without being served. Blacks were demanding equal rights, and they were starting to get them. And Mitchell became part of this movement. He returned to Enid, became a leader in Enid's civil rights movement, staging successful sit-ins at two downtown lunch counters. He was done with the military. He received an honorable discharge, enrolled as a psychology major at Enid's Phillips University, which uh, had just recently opened its doors to black students. Uh, that school no longer exists, exists, by the way. If you like live in Enid and you're like, oh, there's no fucking Phillips University here. Yeah, I know, no, it closed its doors in 1998. If you go to Northern Oklahoma College in Enid, well, you're on the old Phillips campus. Back in Enid, Hulan starts dabbling in alternative spiritual movements now, including, and this is a fun one, the Rosicrucians, a secretive order whose adherents believe that they can develop mental powers to help them achieve health, wealth, and happiness. Here we go. This is crazy. Here's where we get to some some real crazy. We get thrown in the the the, the pot here, the, the stew pot. He's got he got racial angst, right? He's got a fringy religious upbringing. Now we're now we're throwing in some some real cray cray into making a cult leader. Uh, Rosicrucianism. We've touched on it in a few other sucks. It's been described as a low pressure, less expensive version of Scientology, uh, based on New Age beliefs instead of L. Ron Hubbard science fiction by some. Uh, I would just describe it, it. It is so preposterously batshit crazy. It's, it's so fun. Currently, <laughs> to be a Rosicrucian, you can pay several hundred dollars a year for membership and they will send you printed lessons for self-study that teach you all about their mystical belief system, the keys to universal wisdom, as they put it. Rosicrucians uh, reach various levels or degrees based on you know, how much self-study material you've purchased and read. So that's, you know, it's very similar to Scientology. You, you can even perform your own initiation ceremonies uh, into each uh, new degree at home. In your first five years as a Rosicrucian, uh, you'll cover the three neophyte degrees from first atrium through third atrium. And then the temple section from first temple degree through ninth temple degree. Uh, by this time, <laughs> your teaching will include uh, such topics as, oh, buddy, uh, mental alchemy, telepathy, telekinesis, vibroturgy, radiesthesia. Oh, it's like a, almost like a made up word. Radi, radiesthesia. Radiesthesia, cosmic protection, mystical regeneration, attunement with the cosmic consciousness. You know, pretty reasonable stuff. It seems like a bargain, really. You pay a couple hundred dollars a year to get your cosmic consciousness tuned up. You get to be mystically regenerated. Come on. You need to learn how to send messages with your mind and move shit with your brain and and do whatever the fuck mental alchemy is. Actually, actually, I do know what it is, sadly, now. And for just $1,000, you can too when you buy my new book, Super Cool Magical Secrets for Gullible Idiots. Uh, but for real, it's the ability to influence others, bend them to your will with secret mental magic. Vibraturgy is a thing completely made up by the Rosicrucians. It's inwardly harmonizing our sensitivities with an object in order to perceive its true nature. Uh, Radiesthesia is vibrational physics. It's a sensitivity, a sensitivity, oh, God damn it sensitiveness to vibrations that one can supposedly obtain that enables a person with the aid of a divining rod or a pendulum uh, to detect things 
uh, such as the presence of underground water, the nature of an illness, or the guilt of a suspected person. It's crazy talk. And Hulan is getting into all this. In his mind, <laughs> he, he must think that he's training himself to basically be a literal wizard. They should send you a wizard hat and a wand when you first sign up for Rosicrucianism. Uh, but they don't. But <laughs> to show how extra crazy this thing is, you're, when you get a membership right now, you also gain access to their Council of Solace. It's, called, it's truly called a Council of Solace. It's beings who exist. You can't see them. No one can prove that they're real. They, some kind of beings that exist on some other plane of existence and they'll help you if you're having trouble making rent or if you've been like having migraines, but they don't help you for free. These, these beings on another level of existence are somehow tied to the Rosicrucian fucking pyramid scheme system or multi-level. It's not even, I guess it's not a pyramid scheme, but this weird <laughs> pay to attain more knowledge scheme. Here's what their website this is what the Rosicrucian website says about the Council of Solace. This council does this by putting certain spiritual energies into motion and directing them in accordance with mystical law and natural principles. Metaphysical aid is thus directed to individuals with health, domestic, economic, or other problems. And aid is also directed to those who are attuned with the council. The aid of the Council of Solace. <laughs> it's hard to say. Like, who fucking talks about this stuff without laughing? The aid of the Council of Solace operates on the cosmic plane. Its activity is solely metaphysical and in no way interferes with any professional or healthcare assistance being received on the physical plane. Oh, that's good. Oh God, you know, cause um, I mean, I want to get it, but I, I just want to make sure that it's not, you know, interfering with like my healthcare plan, you know, with, with any kind of vitamin. Like I, I should probably run it by my doctor, you know, like before I take this Z-Pack is, is listen, I'm, I, when they, like when they ask me like, hey, are you on any other kind of medicines? Well, I am conferring with the Council of Solace. Is that going to affect my zithromycin? My God, man, my headaches are gone. I wonder if it's the extra water I've been drinking or the extra sleep I've been getting, less stress I've been under, the excedrin migraine I've been taking, or is it the Council of fucking Solace? There's a sucker born every minute and some of those suckers become Rosicrucians. And, and one of those suckers was Hulan Jr., and I have to imagine he eventually thought, if these motherfuckers can sell this bullshit, oh man, what can I sell? All of this was too much for Hulan's conservative wife. She bounces, they get a divorce, and unusually he's awarded custody of their children. And based on who he reveals himself to be later, I wonder if he threatened her or something. Because he will reveal himself to be a ruthless dude willing to do basically anything horrible to other people. Also in the early 1960s, uh, Mitchell grows disillusioned with the civil rights movement. He would later say the civil rights movement was not about becoming free from the oppressor. The civil rights movement was about fighting and dying to get inside of oppression to become better oppressed. The civil rights movement was about being able to stop giving your money to your black brother and give it all to your oppressor. You wanted to sleep in the white hotel and eat in the white restaurant so you wouldn't have to eat in the black restaurant no more. Uh, here are some of that early fuck those white devil sentiment. But, it also, but again, with this one, this one, I mean, logically does make some sense to me. I mean, I can't fault him for, for, for having this kind of sentiment. Man, with my temperament, if, if I grew up being oppressed by a black majority culture who wouldn't let me or my family eat in their restaurants or sleep in their hotels or go to their schools or drink from their water fountains, I'd have a hard time not fucking hating them. And, uh, and I probably wouldn't want to support their business, right? That is an interesting take on the civil rights uh, movement. I'd never thought of what he's saying here, but I, but I, I get what, he, what he's saying. Not that the civil rights movement was wrong. It was absolutely right. But, but also how strange to fight so hard to have the opportunities to support the businesses of people who hate you and think that they're better than you, who, who don't want to give you their business. I wouldn't want to give those people my money either. 
uh, for you Star Wars nerds out there, Star Wars nerds, uh, I, I feel like Hulan is like Anakin Skywalker right here, right? Like, like right before he becomes Darth Vader. He's starting to give in to his hate. He's, he's starting to embrace the power of the dark side. And for non-Star Wars fans, uh, dark does not mean African-American in this sense. I, I want to make that extra clear in this uh, narrative. Uh, Hulan starts attending meetings of the Nation of Islam, whose adherents, as we touched on earlier, uh, believe that blacks are genetically superior to other races, especially white devils. They call for total segregation. Suddenly, Mitchell is no longer uh, viewing his blackness as a curse, but as a blessing. He's all in on this stuff. Music to his ears. The nation teaches, you know, that black Americans have to band together to physically protect themselves from evil white devils running the country. The group's eye for an eye militancy was way more appealing to Mitchell than the turn the other cheek Christianity of his parents. Hulan is no longer uh, Hulan Mitchell now. Following the nation's teachings, he replaces his slave name of Mitchell with an X. He's done with Christianity. He's a radical Muslim now. In the mid-60s, Hulan X moves to Atlanta, where he attends services at a mosque, studies the Quran, takes courses towards a master's degree in economics at Atlanta University, and despises Whitey more by the day. He supports only black-owned businesses and homeschools his kids with the help of his new wife, Chloe Height. He hawks copies of the nation's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, on street corners, changes his last name again, this time to Shah, which means ruler or minister. He starts conducting his own Islamic services in a converted Baptist church, starts showing himself to be a powerfully charismatic speaker, he uses his economics degree to manage black Muslim enterprises, including restaurants, a bakery, a clothing store. And then just as Minister Shah's power within the nation is growing, he gets accused in 1967 of fleecing $50,000 from church coffers, and he gets accused of molesting many children in his flock. No, 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 you guys, you guys got it all wrong. I wasn't molesting those kids. I, I was teaching them just a bit of uh, uh, ratasthesia, a little bit of vibroturgy. I was teaching them how to harmonize some of their vibrational frequencies to one of my objects. I just figured for the sake of teaching, I could show them you know, how they can make their rectums good conductors for my divination rod. Come on, gosh dang. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> Big JK. I'm just goofing around for funsies. Mitchell 32 does not wait around for church investigators to conclude other investigation because he knows he's fucking guilty and he just takes off and quits the movement. Uh, he, he would say, say later that he left because he was afraid it ended up getting assassinated like Malcolm X. And he's probably right. He probably would have gotten assassinated, but not because he threatened, you know, nation leadership like Malcolm did. It was because he was a thieving pedophile. He resurfaces in another part of Atlanta shortly afterwards, now calling himself Father Mitchell. Now he's gone back to Christianity. He changes the trademark bow tie of the Nation of Islam for a long white robe based on Revelation 3.5 from the King James Bible. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Or raiment. Uh, he's back into Christianity now. Got in trouble for stealing and diddling with the, you know Muslims. Now he's back to conning some Christians. This piece of trash knows how to talk, you know, uh, the talk in both religions now. Now he's a faith healer. He's going to use some of that Rosicrucian mumbo jumbo. The Benny Hinn, the devil, just going to fucking Hadouken the devil right out of your bones, right out of your lungs when you're sick. He's going to lay his hands on you. So, you, uh, you know, you'll trust him and then he can lay his hands on and in your kids. Together with another faith healer in Atlanta, knows his father, Joan, he gets himself on the radio, takes to Atlanta's airwaves, pushing a total blessing plan on the city's gospel stations that would bring listeners health, happiness, and best part, Winning lotto numbers. Not kidding. For a small donation. What a piece of shit. He's a prosperity preacher now. A prosperity preacher now. Who's going to give you winning lottery numbers if you just give him some money. And if you don't win the lottery after making that donation, it's not his fault. It's not, it's not Father Mitchell's fault. Come on, gosh, get out of here. No, it's your fault. You didn't follow instructions right, right? You can't, you can't just donate, okay? You have to also have the right amount of faith. Wake up, numbnuts. 
If you're going to win the lottery, God needs you to have the right amount of faith, donate to Father Mitchell, pray the exact right amount of times, spin around 777 times in 777 minutes, burp the alphabet backwards while standing on one leg, so saith the Lord. Going on radio alerts his former black Muslim brothers to his presence. They haven't forgotten about him, stealing from them or diddling their kids. They find him. They start trailing him as he drives around town in his Cadillac and biblical attire. He's worried he's going to get murdered. You know, they think his, uh, you know, uh, quick exit from the nation of Islam is a, is a tacit admission of guilt, which I think so as well. They want their money back. They want him to pay. Now he starts using some of his radio scam money to hire armed bodyguards. He equips his home with an alarm system and burglar bars. He forms a little posse around him for protection. Then in May of 1969, three men gunned down his radio partner, Father Joan, what looks like a black Muslim hit. Father Mitchell knows he could be next, but he doesn't run. He stays put. The money's good. He has hired guns watching his back now. He decides to keep taking his chances for a while in Hotlanta. He prints brochures claiming he can heal people with a blessed prayer cloth. He can improve their fortunes, right? That lame walk, the brochure exclaims, disorders disappear. He's going to, Hadouken, he's going to knock it right out of you with a little Benny Hinn blast. The propaganda sites, happy customers who Mitchell's prayers have uh, scored them a Cadillac or made their beauty salon prosper or made their diabetes go away. He's a conscienceless predator, preying on the desperate for money. Or desperate due to failing health. He's a predator who preys on children. I totally believe he must those kids because of what we'll learn about him later. He's a bad dude. His religious racket works, man. He takes the tricks the sick. He takes money from the poor. He moves his family into a big ass house. Nice gated yard, buys two mint Eldorados and he is just getting started. He opens a church, the modern Christian church. Starts wearing flamboyant costumes. Satin tunics, robes with zebra lining. Fuck yeah, bro. Gold crown and the scepter. At his urging, his congregation starts to call him the king. In the church's corporate charter, he names himself president and minister for life. He's got a religious dictatorship. He is the king. This insane asshole is wearing a crown, holding a scepter. God wants you to be richer. He proclaims to his congregation a message his followers want to hear. They come Sunday after Sunday, tithing a portion of their meager earnings, hoping these little tithes will be an investment in divine currency. Going to pay them back a hundredfold. Man, fuck podcasting. Maybe I should open up a prosperity church. Can you feel the power of Nimrod flowing through your veins? Can you feel the heat of Lucifina making your holy body sweat? Nimrod wants you to be rich. Lucifina wants you to feel good. Can I get the men to leave the room? Can I get the ladies to take off the clothes? Feel the spirit of the Lord flowing through your naked bodies. Not you, Margaret. No. <laughs> no, Margaret. Uh, Nimrod and Lucifina want you to leave your clothes on. Get out in the lobby with the men. Everyone else gather around my God's staff. Touch it. Feel its power. Move it up and down and not quite so fast. Some of you need to lotion your hands. Looking at you, Michelle. Got some crazy calluses. Everybody else bend over. Hurry before my wife comes back from the bakery with the snacks. Nimrod has not quite convinced her that this is all part of his whole plan. Shit, man. What, what this fucking guy would actually do is, is crazier than the, the joking I was just doing. <laughs> like, it's, this is not far from the truth. Father Mitchell's rags to riches message kept making him more and more money right up until the mid-70s when his congregation finally got pissed about him taking all their fucking money and, and, and they're, they're not any luckier. They're not hitting any more lotto, lotto numbers and they turn on him. They get lawyers. Uh, they go to take him to court for fraud. He vanishes takes his kid, abandons his second wife, and just, pew, just out, just gone. Just leaves everybody. Uh, soon after he disappears from Atlanta, pops up in Orlando, Florida. 
just 400 miles south. Man, the, the shit people could get away with before the internet. Right now, people just find him on social media or YouTube or somewhere, right? Word would get around on Facebook. You know, they just show up at his new church. And be like, dude, are you fucking, are you kidding me? What, you think you just hide in Orlando? Give, give us our money. Uh, back in the 70s, he could do something like that. And so he did. He's now a street preacher. Now he's brother love. Strolling down the city's sidewalks, offering hope to the downtrodden. You know, he couldn't wait to build them up and fuck them over. This total sociopath gathers a new group of followers. One of them is an attractive woman named Linda, 29-year-old single mother of three. Linda finds Mitchell's straight-laced lifestyle message appealing. No alcohol, no drugs. She thought he would be a good influence on her family. Uh, she was very wrong. Uh, within months, he has his new followers paying his bills. He uh, resumes his religious studies. Now he's reading up on Buddhism, Judaism, Sikhism, Hinduism, about every other ism he could find. He's still studying the Quran and the Bible. He starts to believe that the Bible contains secret, powerful messages that will reveal themselves to enough studious attention. Of course he believes that. He's looking at everything with those Rosicrucian crazy magic eyes, put, putting that mental alchemy into his religious studies. He plucks beliefs from you know, different isms, cooks up a new religion based on the black Hebrew movement we talked about earlier, right? Who taught that Africans were the true Jews who had descended from the lost tribes of Israel. Now Father Love changes his name yet again, Hulan Mitchell Jr., who became Hulan X, who became Hulan Shah, who became Father Mitchell, who became Father Love, is now Akmosha Israel. Hebrew for brother Moses Israel, because like Moses, he believed he was ordained to lead his people to freedom. At least that's what he said. I doubt it. I mean, in his inner thoughts, in his private moments, did he actually think he was helping these people? Is he, was he that crazy? Or was this all an act? Did he study all those religions to find spiritual truths? Or did he know that the more familiar he was with those texts, the easier it would be for him to convincingly manipulate religious-minded folk, take advantage of them? I think that is the truth. I think he took his hustle seriously. He knew that the better he could talk the talk, the better he looked the part, the more he could walk the walk, right? The more he could take and get away with. I think only he knew for sure. And you couldn't trust a word this fucking snake said. 1978, Mitchell arrives in Miami along with Linda. After he had a revelation, God told him to move to Miami. Uh, I wonder if this revelation had anything to do with uh, more hot women wearing revealing clothing down there. I mean, have you been to Miami? It's, uh, there's, there's, I would, I would say there's, you know, there's, there's more models, skimpily dressed models per capita than Orlando. I've been to both cities quite a few times. Nothing against Orlando. Miami is just, it's like, you know, it's like model central, central, uh, bikini central. As soon as the couple arrives, uh, Mitchell uses his street preacher tactics to win over more followers. He claims his disciples one by one, walking up to people in diners and bookstores and parks, introduced himself as a Bible teacher, dressed in a sharp suit, talking to them in a soft, earnest voice. Why doesn't anyone do that to me? I would love to have a, a conversation in a diner with a religious con man. Oh man, make, make them think they're about to hit a big payday before telling them to fuck off would fill me with joy. You know, to some con man. And, and this is the gift God gave me. The ability to see those in need and of, his, of his word and bring a bountiful harvest of financial blessings to their door, knowing that they will use their wealth to spread his love. Oh man, Father, Father, you really do have divine sight. Listen, just recently, this is crazy. This is crazy. Just recently, I, forgive me for sounding like I'm boasting here. I fell into the possession of a lot of money, like over $10 million, huge inheritance. I've been struggling spiritually to, to know what to do with it. My, my aunt who gave it to me, I feel bad, but she was not a Christian. I feel like it's the devil's money. And it, and it, it feels like I need to have it blessed. If, if I were to give you nearly this entire burden, can you assure me 
that it will be used to spread God's glory. Why, yes, son, I, I knew the Lord pointed me towards you for a very important reason. Oh, thank you, Father. Ah, we, we should do this now. We should go, go to the bank. But first, just to make sure that you're who God wants me to give the money to, I, I need you to come into the bathroom with me, Father. Uh, the bathroom, son, I'm, I'm not sure I'll follow. Yes, yes, Father, I, I need you to suck my dick in one of the stalls. God is telling me at my heart right now that he, need, he, wants, he wants you to suck my dick and, and then you'll get that money. Uh, son, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little confused. Are you serious? No, I'm not serious. I don't have fucking 10 million, you piece of shit. I'd rather kick you down the street than let you suck my dick. Get the fuck out of here. Ah, oh, God, what a, what a great life moment that would be. Uh, uh, I'm insane. Akmosha, Israel, finds a lot of people in South Florida who do not say things like that to him. They're very open to his teachings, right? Remember, uh, we talked about Miami earlier, blacks in Miami, uh, forgotten minority, Cubans fleeing communist, uh, you know, the island they came from struggling to rise to the levels of financial success as many of the area's whites, many of whom are Jewish. All this helps his new black Hebrew-Israelite-themed message of the Jews, the devil. You're a member of the true chosen tribe of God. You're the one who should be rich, not them. Many black neighborhoods festered with cocaine-fueled crime and poverty, right? There's a lot of police brutality. Akamosha Israel, he's, he's gonna save them. Did you know that God is blacker? He'd ask them. Yes, it's true. It's the world's best kept secret. And which is a seriously weird notion, by the way, like white or black that an immortal God would be a member of any race. You ever think about that? Like, why would, it, why would a God be black or white or Asian or Hispanic or any other race? Wouldn't a God be above race, right? And, and humans didn't used to be all these races. And God is supposed to be much older than humans. So God would predate any of these racial notions. So why would God be racial in any fucking belief system? Like, <laughs> like I just feel like if you're thinking of God in racial terms, in my opinion, you're, you're looking at the divine in a very intellectually limited way. Uh, some of the strangers who on approach were intrigued and asked questions, which he happily answered. He told them, as I just mentioned, that blacks were the true Jews. God chose them people. He cracked open his dog-eared King James Bible to offer them proof, tapping the scriptures with his finger. In Daniel 7, 9, God is described as having hair like pure wool. Look at black folks' hair. It also looks like wool. And in Psalm 119.83, God says, For I am become like a bottle in the smoke. A bottle of smoke is black. He'd lean in close and tell his audience why this wasn't popular knowledge. Whites are liars, white devils. The white devils have told us this so they could brutalize and dominate the black folks. Um, a brother, many names, printed flyers and peppered black neighborhoods with them, inviting people to learn about his new religion. The curious began to gather at his doorstep. They sat on the floor of his living room, listening to Akmosha uh, McDouche proclaim their superior status. They felt uplifted. He would read Genesis 15, 13. And he said unto Abram, Know of surety that thy seed shall be stranger in the land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. I, I copied this Abram, but I think it's supposed to be Abraham, but maybe, and he interpreted the passage for them. You know, it's whites enslaving blacks for 400 years. He said, he had been chosen, he said, by the terrible black God, Yahweh, to lead oppressed African-Americans back to the promised land of Israel, where they would establish a new kingdom and live in equality and prosperity. See, he's totally teaching what the black uh, Hebrew Israelites message, uh, you know, we learned about earlier. And this message, thanks to racial tension, you know, again, you know, message is well received. These early disciples recruit more disciples who recruit, you know, family and friends and coworkers. They go door to door in the black communities of Overtown, Liberty City, and Little Haiti, knocking on doors, smartly dressed, always polite. Shalom, they would greet residents. You know, they, they, they'd sell hope to the desperate. Brother Diddler told his followers that white Jews were Satan's spawn based on Revelation 3.9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This passage was yet another indication that blacks were God's chosen people. 
He told his growing flock that blacks should separate themselves as much as possible from the white devils. He starts a private school in a congregant's home. Two dozen kids of all ages cram into a single room. Get them away from the hands of the white devils. Get them right into the hands of a pedophile. More prey for the predator. The school is not licensed by the state, but at that time it didn't need to be. So Mitchell had free reign to design his own curriculum. He fans the flames of black rage and young scholars by ad-libbing his way through social studies class, making up shit. Bringing in news articles about police abuse that proves that there's a conspiracy against African-Americans. When the kids start walking around literally chanting, I hate Whitey, I hate Whitey, a couple concerned parents uh, pull their kids from the school. They're out. But most do not. By the end of 1979, he reaches a new level of success he had never quite attained in Orlando. His organization, the Nation of Yahweh, would soon describe itself as follows. In 1979, Yahweh, Ben Yahweh, came to Miami and became the spiritual leader and founder of the Nation of Yahweh. Although he took a vow of poverty, in seven years, he guided the nation to amass a $250 million empire. That's, I think that number is extremely inflated, but this is from their teachings. Under his direction, the nation has grown to encompass disciples, followers, and supporters in over 1,300 cities. That's, that's not true. Uh, within the U.S. and 16 other countries. Not true. But he did do a lot of stuff. Uh, then came the Arthur McDuffie beating and murder I spoke about earlier at length. December 21st, 1979, Arthur McDuffie, that insurance salesman, beaten to death by white Miami cops after the uh, high-speed chase on the motorcycle, right? May 18th, 1980, the all-white jury returns not guilty verdict. There's riots. The city bursts into flames. Immediately after the riots, Mitchell's followers visit black communities and pass out, you know, little pamphlets with titles like, can I protect my child from Whitey's evil influence? That's an actual title. And white Americans are kidnappers and terrorists, right? And, and this message again, pretty well received. People are afraid, they're angry. They don't trust the, the white people. Uh, he, you know, he's probably overjoyed about that McDuffie kind of situation. His death couldn't have worked out better for his message. Mitchell tells his followers that he will care for them, feed them, clothe them, protect them. Someday soon, he will lead them to Jerusalem. And now he starts calling himself Yahweh ben Yahweh, God, son of God. He tells them that he's the Messiah that God has promised them in the Bible. And here we fucking go, right? He's kicked it up to the next level. Not just a religious con man. Now he's got a full cult leader. He's not just saying he has a unique understanding of God's word. He's saying that he is God's word. He is God. He is the real Jesus. Who has the power to deliver us from the brutality of the white man? He'd ask his congregation during sermons that were, uh, you know, meticulously tape recorded. Yahweh ben Yahweh, they'd answer. One God, one mind, one love, praise Yahweh. In typical cult leader fashion, uh, Yahweh ben Yahweh begins urging members to cut off family and friends who aren't part of the congregation. There was life before Yahweh. And then there's life after Yahweh and life before Yahweh is over. Cult, 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 cult. Followers pool their money, rent houses together, homeschool their kids. They reject white standards of beauty. The men stop shaving. The women stop using chemical straighteners. They don loose white robes that skim the floor, just like Mitchell's. They eat a kosher-based diet, don't drink, smoke or do drugs. They give up their slave names in favor of common last name of Israel. They choose biblical names like Solomon or Gideon or Esther. Mitchell tells them that as long as they're of one mind, no one can harm them. Dissent will tear them apart. He warns prophetically, quoting Leviticus, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. Right? Pretty easy to read subtext there. Do what I fucking tell you. I'm God, you forsake me, you forsake your fucking soul and you will rot in the bowels of hell. Cult, 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 cult. 
right? Once cult leaders start saying shit like this, you know, that, that if you disagree with them or question them, you're angering God and you'll be punished only a matter of time before cult members are literally getting fucked. That part of the story is coming. By October of 1980, the Yahweh Ben Yahweh flock has at least 150 diehard members. They've bought a dilapidated warehouse in a section of Miami called Liberty City where Yahweh Ben Dingleberry tells them they will live until their exodus to Jerusalem. Surprisingly, most members balk at the idea of going full-time and uh, completely renouncing mainstream America. Man, Yahweh must have been pissed. Must have given a big speech about how all those weak pretenders just revealed themselves as Satan puppets. Good riddance. Right? They're for sure going to hell now. He does get initially 30 people to come along to listen to yada and yada, yada, yada. And uh, they sell their homes and cars and quit schools and jobs and they move into this skid row dwelling. Right? The building spans a full city block. Everyone pitches in to fix it. Give, give the walls a fresh coat of paint, restore the plumbing, electricity. They hang paintings of uh, a black Bible characters on the walls, a black Virgin Mary, black Noah, black Moses, a black Last Supper. Someone paints a futuristic city populated only by black people, complete with flying saucers. A caption under that painting says, the black Christ has risen among us today to deliver us from white people. Holy shit. Can you imagine if you were like a white building inspector <laughs> and, you had, and you had to go inspect that building? Uh, wiring and plumbing seem to be up to code, uh, Hulan. I can't say I care for the decor, <laughs> but legally, I, uh, I got to pass you. They named the warehouse the Yahweh Temple of Love, and Yahweh would get to loving many members really soon. Uh, they subdivided the complex into a miniature village with spaces for a sanctuary, a cafeteria, a grocery store, laundry, health center, even an ice cream parlor. I mean, this part is pretty fucking cool. Pretty impressive. I wish I could find pictures of it at, at its height. The only pictures I can find are of the temple long after it was abandoned, now in ruins. Uh, the print shop publishes uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh's propaganda in a, in a King James Bible with depictions of black saints. As for living quarters, each family is allotted a 10 by 15 foot cubicle, separated from other cubicles by an eight foot tall partition. Some people furnish their cubicles with mementos of their old lives. Some just throw a blanket on the bare floor. There's no privacy. No, thank you. I love my privacy. I, I would not enjoy the situation one bit. Uh, strict schedules are imposed on all who live at the Temple of Love up at 5 a.m. for chores, prayers, Bible lessons. And who enforces the schedule in a variety of rules? The Circle of Ten, initially. Mitchell picks 10 strong young men, who he calls the Circle of Ten, to monitor the complex. They carry wooden clubs, which they call the Staffs of Life. Uh-huh, right, Staffs of Life. Uh, I, I bet they were more like staffs of follow the rules or you get a fucking beaten. Yahweh's religious services would feature loud modern music. He'd whip the crowd into a frenzy. Praise Yahweh, they'd shout. They loved it at first. According to later court documents, as his membership grew, so did his demands of his followers. How many of you would die for Yahweh? He would ask as he stood at his pulpit, a living God in front of his believers. Would you kill for Yahweh? Yes, they'd yell back. Yes, they would kill for Yahweh. Yes, they would die for Yahweh. Imagine if you're the FedEx guy or FedEx lady dropping off a package and you, and you hear that shit. Might be tossing future packages onto the porch from the truck after that. Then she starts to get real weird. Uh, like so many gods, Yahweh ben Yahweh starts to work in very cruel and mysterious ways. It was hard to keep secrets in such cramped quarters, but his flock starts to whisper. They start to uh, discuss old Yahweh ben Sneaky Peen. He's having increasingly suspicious behavior. He has started to slip into female followers' little cubicles in the middle of the night when their men had been assigned off to other jobs or he'd slip into the rooms of women who didn't have men in their life under the pretense of teaching them Bible lessons. Uh-huh. Bible lessons taught in the dark with lights off and a lot of heavy breathing. Bible lessons that ended up smelling like sweat and cum. You know, those Bible lessons. Some, some, some Father Yod type spiritual lessons. 
Just ballin', baby. Just followin' the path. Just being the father you always wanted, the one you never knew you needed. One former member years later after Yahweh Ben Yahweh dies, uh, after he'd been in a witness protection program for years out of fear of being killed by leftover members of the cult, said that he later found out that Yahweh Ben Panty Thief was having sex with his wife and many other women. He was having orgies. He would say things like, how many of the sisters would mind having the king seed? Mm-hmm. When Yahweh uh, Ben Wetpeen got wind of people talking, he indignantly proclaimed that he was doing no such thing. He was celibate as Yahweh required him to be, even though he was Yahweh. He was celibate as I guess he himself re required him to be or fucking something like that. Then there was his very, very strange sex ed classes. Teaching classes to women was one way he would isolate the women from the men. Yahweh Ben Naughty Pants required women and adolescent girls to attend midwife classes that he himself conducted. They were taught to shun modern medicine and to have their babies at home, like in biblical times. Couples were forbidden from using birth control and the son of God wanted his disciples to start having babies as soon as they reached puberty. He wanted his tribe to grow and right now. Get it, brothers, sisters, give it up, he preached. It's not about falling in love. It's about multiplying. Have babies and let's subdue and control the earth. Hulan Mitchell Jr. recorded the names of the children born at the Temple of Love in a large black binder he called the Lamb's Book of Life. Same book where he said God recorded the names of the believers who will be saved from hell. What happened in the midwife classes was supposed to stay behind closed doors, but the details eventually leaked out during later court proceedings, and later interviews. Yahweh Ben Batshit had no formal medical training and he was teaching women how to home deliver babies. And it seems as if he was just making shit up as he went along. He instructed women to undress and inspect each other's genitalia. He showed them how to use a douche, demonstrating on a volunteer. Uh-huh. So he douches one woman in front of the other women, all part of God's feminine hygiene masterclass. And then things got really weird. He had, <laughs> this is one of the weirdest things I've ever read. He had one woman lie naked on her back and he had another woman bend down and blow into her vagina, but like really up close, had her spread this woman's labia, get her mouth right up on that vaginal opening and just blow into her. And why? <laughs> well, this is what I mentioned earlier. This is how you perform CPR on unborn babies. I swear to God, I laughed so fucking hard the first time I read that. My God, it doesn't make sense on any level. You would have to not understand anything about pregnancy to fall for that. You would have to not understand that babies get their oxygen in the womb via an umbilical cord. They stay inside the amniotic sac surrounded by fluid, right? You'd, you'd have to not understand that. You'd have to think that like somehow a, a fully formed baby, like a tiny little fully formed baby is just chilling inside a stomach, right? In, inside a mama's belly, not in the stomach, but you know what I mean, in the belly, just sitting inside the vagina and the uterus in there. Like, like, a, like a baby in like an actual fucking meat cave of some kind. And then how would you know that this baby couldn't breathe and was choking? Like that you needed to perform CPR. Like would you have to also think that this little unborn baby could talk, right? Just, <laughs> guys, guys, anybody out there, I feel like I'm about to pass out. It's hot as fuck in here. If I pass out, I'm just not, I'm not gonna be able to breathe. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna need some CPR soon. Please, little heads up, little baby needs a little bit of CPR. Inside the mama's vagina. If any of the women fell for that, like what else could you, <laughs> what else? You could talk them into anything. You'd have to be the most gullible person on earth to fall for that. What else is he teaching them? Hey, I, I hear you're constipated. 
Let me help. You know, you know the fastest and best cure for constipation is to lick another woman's vagina while God fucks your butt. God, God will knock out that poop in no timer. Uh, this maniac also holds. Sorry, that's one of the. I've I've read this so many times, and it just it kills me. It kills me that he did this. This maniac also held secret sex classes for boys and the men. He uh, showed them movies of of white women having sex with animals to dissuade them from lusting after white women. Seriously. I bet he beat off to those videos when no one else is around. <laughs> Probably have to make up some shit, you know, if somebody caught him. God, what what are you doing? Oh, oh shit. Uh, why, uh, I am, uh, I'm beating the devil out of my dicker. Uh, damn devil. Went straight, went right after my dicker. Tried to trick me into watching this white devil filth. And I'm putting a, a whooping on my dick to teach him a lesson. Uh, he also made male followers uh, pull down their pants for DIs, as he called them, uh, dick inspections. No big whoops. Every once in a while, God needs to peek on your weenus. Make sure that that weenus mama Ridgeway clean. Uh, those who weren't circumcised had to pay $100 to be circumcised, and they paid that money to the only doctor the Temple of the Love had. Temple of Love had. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Yahweh Ben didn't go to medical school. It's reported that Dr. Mitchell uh, presided over a gr- of group circumcisions in, his, in the sanctuary, uh, reassuring them that it would be quick and painless. <laughs> and if it's not, he starts slicing off foreskin. People are shrieking in pain. Uh, people are passing out. This was not what his followers signed up for, right? His small living congregation after the group circumcisions, they're, they're really starting to talk now. And once they start talking, they realize that all kinds of other shit's going on. Some of them finally figure out he's been fucking their wives, fucking their girlfriends, making <laughs> vaginal CPR, right? Some of them start to question his authority, but they still don't know the worst of it. They don't know that this dude is also having sex with their kids. He was a sexual predator in Orlando. Of course, he still is in Miami, by the time this cult would be disassembled, members would find out he was molesting girls as young as 10. He would tell the girls that he was God's emissary. It was his job to teach women how to have sex. Dude was a straight up monster. And again, it gets so confusing. Like, are you God or not God? Sometimes he says that he's God's working through him. Sometimes he is God. In exchange for keeping his dirty secrets, he would shower the girls with gifts, special dresses, necklaces, trips to fancy restaurants. One of the girls he abused would later tell investigators that Mitchell, when he was approaching 50 years old, had sex with her and another pubescent girl at the same time. He's having, you know, orgies with these little girls. <sighs> More women would come forward to tell of the Black Savior's abuse at the cult's trial. One married woman testified that Mitchell forced her to have sex with him four days after she delivered a baby, tearing her stitches. Not all the women by the end were living in the compound. Some were actually living outside of it and able to go to hospitals and shit. Uh, one of Mitchell's own flesh and blood sisters, not the opera singer, a sister who joined the cult and later defected, she testified that he raped her, raped his own sister, and that he raped another one of his sisters years before back in Oklahoma. Also came out during his trial that he molested one of his own biological daughters. Uh, one of the girls he abused was a daughter of Linda, the woman who'd accompanied him to Miami. After enduring the shameful activity for years, this daughter broke down and told her brothers who'd already distrusted Mitchell. One of them agreed to wear a bug for the FBI and then provided valuable evidence that, you know, helped lead to the cult's takedown. This dude was a monster, and his story isn't even close to being done. No matter how twisted or racist Mitchell's teachings got, no one dared contradict him. No one dared go to the white devil law enforcement officers. He had brainwashed them into thinking, you know, that were, they were worse than he was, right? He was, after all, he was, he was God. He was God. This is the temple of love. This is absolute theocracy. Those who dared defy him were singled out to public ridicule, uh, in one case, a grown man was made to bend over a chair as women took turns paddling him. In another case, a teenage girl was forced to take her shirt and bra off, and then Mitchell whipped her back in front of everyone. Anyone who disagreed with him was called an Uncle Tom, a race trader, a blasphemer. And then the Circle of Ten got an upgrade. 
to keep people in line. The cult's growing now with way more than 30 people now. No more staffs of life. No more, you know, now the enforcers are carrying machetes, carrying beat down clubs. They're practicing marching drills in front of the temple. They're keeping close watch on people who have fallen out of favor with Yahweh Ben motherfucker. Despite the circle of 10 surveillance, a small group of dissenters uh, managed to find each other. They meet at the house of a Yahweh member who had lived outside the warehouse. They compare notes on all the bizarre shit taking place. Word of this meeting gets back to Mitchell. He excommunicates them. He scratches their names out of the book of life. Prints up a flyer titled Yahweh's hypocrites are warned. And then he writes this in stilted English of the King James Bible. He writes, knowest thou not this of old since man was placed upon earth that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Though his excellency mounts up to the heavens and his head reach into the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. And why do modern prophets insist on speaking in King James uh, Bible English, by the way? It's so annoying, right? That version of the Bible was written that way because that's the way people talked back then on earth, not because it's how God has always talked. Why is that hard to understand? It is fucking ludicrous. If anyone ever tells you that God has given them a prophecy uh, to share and they start speaking with these and thous, get away. They are mentally ill or manipulative liar or both. It's nonsense. I am thou theest, Lord, prepareth thy soul to understandeth my word, thou and thee. Motherfucker, it's 2020, right? You should be talking like, hey, what's up, guys? It's God and shit. You know, I'm like backing stuff. So listen, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Excommunicating those who betrayed Yahweh, been about to murder, uh, bothered him greatly. According to later testimony, it was clear that he wanted them killed. He wanted to send a message to other members. You betray me, you don't just get excommunicated, you die. Check out this fiery sermon he had recorded. Whoever does not want me to rule over them, those are my enemies. And if you are my enemy, you must die. You must be killed. I want to see it. I want to see your head come off personally. I want to see the blood seep from your veins. I want to, you know, the jugular vein. I want to see it. And then he made a gurgling noise. Like, you won't be able to see it seep, but you'll feel that sword when it bites your neck. I can't wait to see that. What a pleasure. All my enemies killed with a sword. This is the kind of sermon he's given at this point. Uh, the Circle of Ten, uh, they take uh, Mitchell's words to heart. And Jamaican-born Aston Green becomes the first victim murdered by the cult. It's Friday the 13th, November 1981. A construction worker drives his truck down a narrow dirt road to a rock pit located on the edge of the Everglades for a routine equipment check. As he parks his vehicle, he notices a large red blanket spread over the weeds a few feet from the road, an odd sight in the remote area populated by 12-foot alligators, the occasional panthers, and some strangler figs. Gets out of his truck, walks towards it, bends over the blanket, pulls up the fabric. Underneath is a man in jeans and a Florida Atlantic University t-shirt. A man missing his head. Blood is still seeping from his severed neck into the grass. He realizes the man has just been murdered. He jerks upright, looks around wildly, notices a tree next to the body splattered with red with blood. And then he sprints back to his truck and radios his office. This corpse belonged to Aston Green, Jamaican-born nation of Yahweh member who had defied his cult and been excommunicated. Green was a former Sunday school teacher, a month shy of his 26th birthday when he was beheaded. He had taken the name Elijah Israel when he joined the cult, but reverted back to his birth name when he left. And although he'd been warned to steer clear of the Temple of Love after his defection, he still had friends at the warehouse and he still frequently returned to visit them. So when he showed up again that fatal Friday the 13th, the Temple enforcers decided to end him. They brought him to a remote corner of the warehouse and beat him to a bloody pulp. Hit him, kicked him, stomped on his chest, uh, and then a little boy ran out of a nearby classroom to see what the commotion was, was shooed away. The beating was so severe, they later painted the floor red to hide the stain of his blood. 
They dumped Green's still barely living body into the trunk of a car, drove him to the rock quarry. He He then begged them for mercy in a weak voice. And then Yahweh Ben CPR instructors and forces dragged him over a piece of coral rock, stretched his neck out and chopped off his fucking head. One of them would later say, according to court documents, damn, this blade is dull. It took him 20 hacks to cut his head off. Mitchell's reaction was especially grotesque, according to testimony, saying, when we take the next head, we're going to put that head in a basket on a post so the whole city can see it and fear Yahweh. News of Green's death swept quickly through dissonant circles. Few decided, uh, or, or a few decided it was time to let police know what was happening inside the Temple of Love. Little did they know that there were moles among them waiting to take news of another betrayal back to their tyrannical cult leader. One of the dissenters, or two of them, I'm sorry, were uh, two popular members, Carlton Carey and Jamaican bo- a Jamaican-born teacher and his wife, Mildred Banks. On November 15th, 1981, just two days after Aston Green's decapitation, Mitchell's enforcers are waiting for Carlton Carey, formerly Yaquim Israel, when he and Mildred return home from an exhausting police interview. Four men wearing ski masks attack them as soon as they walk through the door of the house. They shoot Carey to death. Miraculously, Mildred survives despite being shot in the chest and despite having half her throat cut uh, slit by a machete. The gunman left her for dead. She dragged herself to the, ha- to the house of a neighbor and called the police. The, the neighbor called the police. Back at the temple, Mitchell holds a pep rally to celebrate the death of the infidels. Although some attendees were horrified by the news, they dared not show it. Temple guards are watching the congregation closely, looking for signs of nonconformity. They had no choice but to clap their hands and praise Yahweh with the rest of the horde. They didn't want to be next on Mitchell's hit list. After the murders, plainclothes cops start patrolling the warehouse full-time. Unmarked squad cars patrol the neighborhood, sizing up the turbaned, machete-carrying guards. The police didn't have enough proof linking the attacks to the cult to get arrest warrants. These white devils couldn't raid Hulan's holy compound until they had solid evidence, and it would be a long time before they got it. All they could do was keep their frustrating watch as 14 other terrified dissidents go into hiding. Other people now too afraid to talk to the police about what they knew was going on at the temple. Finally, a break came in the case. It looked like it was going to be a break that would lead to something. The cops noticed a green carpet hanging from the temple wall that matches a piece of carpet found with Green's body. Sergeant Frank uh, Wesolowski, the Polish head of the homicide department, uh, Polish people are the worst white devils, by the way. He decides to pay an official visit to the eccentric prophet. Of course he did. This is one of the few things Hulan and I agree on, that Polish people are, the, uh, in fact, white devils. If he would have just focused all of his racial anger on the Polish and only killed and beaten and molested Polish people, I would have a poster of this guy in my fucking bedroom wall. A nice visual reminder for my crystal-loving Polish monster wife to watch her fucking Polish tongue. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Anyway. Uh, this piece of shit, a detective, no, JK. He was a good guy. He's a good guy. Did a little Polish bashing jokesies for funsies. Uh, I don't hate Polish people. Uh, detective Wasilowski was received by Yahweh Ben Guilty in his office, calmly sitting at his desk, flanked by two large enforcers as he asked him questions about the carpet. Uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh deflects the d- detective's questions, lecturing him and his partner instead about the white oppression of blacks. At one point, he holds up a copy of a historical photograph showing black men lynching or being lynched by a white mob. And he says, this is what your people have done to us for the last 400 years. Uh, Wazlowski and a a fellow detective leave scratching their heads, baffled by the racist anger of the cult leader, unable to pry enough useful information out of him to make an arrest. Despite the fact that two people have been murdered, almost a third, despite the fact that everyone knew Yahweh Ben Yahweh is behind it, despite the fact that he's fucking everyone's wives and molesting their kids, the cult still grows in late 81 and 82. He's gotten away with everything you've just heard. For now, at least. 
Emissaries travel to black communities across the country now, dressed in biblical robes and sandals, giving away copies of Hulan's racist propaganda, recruiting new members. He must have felt invincible at their peak after he had killed two people and a third almost. The always claimed satellite churches in 45 cities, tens of thousands of members. 500 people live at the warehouse now. What the fuck? Uh, Mitchell buys old bus, excuse me. Mitchell buys old buses from Dade County to house single men who live there three or four to a bus and to accommodate members of satellite churches who had made pilgrimages, pilgrimages to Liberty City for various feasts and celebrations. I mean, he is thriving. One of these pilgrims, 22-year-old black belt karate expert from New Orleans, a man who attended the Feast of the Tabernacles in the fall of 1983, Leonard Dupree. Leonard Dupree's parents did not want him to join this weird turban-wearing cult to begin with. But Dupree was a strong-willed young man, a searcher, and his father finally relented to loaning him money to catch a bus to the cult's headquarters, and he never returned home. Dupree drew the attention of temple guards for spacing out in class and wandering around by himself. Rumors start to circulate that he might be an assassin sent to kill the Messiah. Why do they think this? Because they're fucking crazy. Now 48-year-old Halon Mitchell Jr. is paranoid. He's worried about getting caught for the murders. He's worried about other defectors talking. He's worried about the FBI or the CIA sending undercover agents into the temple to bring it all down. He starts censoring mail to and from the temple. His enforcers constantly on the lookout for spies. And then one afternoon, shortly after Dupree's arrival in late 1983, Dupree gets into a fight with another Yahweh member as a crowd of 70 onlookers watch and he beats this dude's ass, right? He's a karate expert. And Yahweh Ben Rasputin, crazy, uh, is called to the scene. Do you want to hurt me? Yahweh Ben Yahweh asks Dupree. No, the young man replies, surprised. I just want to kiss your feet. Well, Mitchell doesn't buy it. He accuses Dupree of coming to his temple to start mayhem, to assassinate him. And an angry crowd surges around the young man and then someone in the crowd yells, kill him! And Mitchell doesn't stand in the way as the enfor as enforcer wielding a tire iron cracks Dupree's skull. And then as he falls down, the crowd descends upon him crazy with bloodlust. He is beaten by an unknown number of followers. The crowd continues to beat him after he's, you know, completely lost consciousness on the floor. They rip his clothes off. They stomp on his genitals. Someone pokes his eye completely out of his head with a broomstick. Sentries lock the doors so that no one can leave. And then Yahweh ben Yahweh makes everyone present, every man, woman, and child in the room, hit him at least once. He makes them all accessories to murder. He wants to bind them by Dupree's blood to this crime. No one's hands will be clean. No one will be able to denounce the murder out to authorities afterwards. The flock that kills together stays together. After his slow death, a group of men rolled Dupree's body up into carpet and they dump it near a canal uh, whose location they would later forget and police would never recover his body. Right, the story is so crazy. And it's not even close to over. This murderous, insane, wife-fucking pedophile continues to expand his empire. We have years left on this timeline. After this murder, the cult opens a food distribution firm, a housing business, a bottling company that cranks out bottles of Yahweh beer, Yahweh wine, Yahweh soda drinks, everything that the Yahwehs themselves are forbidden from even tasting, right? Sell that shit to the white devils, give them diabetes, make money off their ill health. That's what God wants. Everyone's expected to contribute to the group's financial success. One member, a former hairdresser, created a line of hair uh, unguents for black folk that was a national success, made them a lot of money. Others are hawking merchandise on the city streets, selling cassettes of Mitchell sermons, Yahweh key rings, pencils, and t-shirts. Former members would say that there was a quota of at least $10 per day for everyone. The street peddlers would sometimes work for 18 hours a day, right? If they failed to meet their quota, they were sent to the prayer room, also known as the pain room, 
where they were forced to kneel for hours at a time as temple guards watched and hit them with a switch if they got up without permission. God's will be done. The Yahweh's who still held jobs in the outside world were now required to give some serious tithes to Mr. Mitchell. Fuck 10%, fuck 20 or even 50%. They were now required to deposit their entire paycheck into the Yahweh bank account. Meanwhile, despite all this money flowing in, he cuts back on food for his flock, reducing their meals down from three per, bit per day to one a day, usually just a serving of beans. Some of the kids become emaciated. Mitchell takes the money he saves by starving and overworking his flock, invests it in real estate, starts buying and renovating rundown apartments in blighted neighborhoods. The Messiah slumlord presents himself as a ghetto savior. He's lauded by the business community. His influence grows and this walking human turd is able to secure loans and buy more buildings. His real estate empire grows, motels, apartment complexes, grocery stores. The Temple of Love Incorporation's fortunes rise to over 8 million. Not even close to how, how great they'd be by the time this is all over. You know, and that, and that doesn't count all the money he's making off of vagina baby CPR classes. At the height of his empire, he had over 5,000 certified instructors teaching women worldwide how to lick open other women's vaginas and blow air inside of them to save creepy talking babies, not in fluid, just chilling in women's vagina caves, right? Right. <laughs> babies able to call out for help if they have trouble breathing. Help, help me, someone out there. Mom didn't do her steak enough before swallowing. I'm a baby, I'm about to choke. I need CPR. Somebody quick, save that talking unborn baby. Open up that woman's vagina and blow in there. Uh, but seriously, the Temple of Love becomes one of Miami's largest black owned corporations. He's hailed as a black role model, credited with eliminating the drug trade, right? Wherever his businesses are located. Uh, publicly, he's heralded as a pillar of the black community. Privately, he grows more paranoid. He forms a secret group called the Brotherhood, a band of tall, muscular young men available for discreet missions, right? First, he had the secret circle of 10. Now he's got an even more ruthless inner circle, a more secretive group called the Brotherhood. To become a member of the Brotherhood, applicants have to kill a white devil and bring Mitchell a body part, ear, nose, finger, Something is proof of their kill. How does this story keep getting more insane? If this shit was a movie, it would feel over the top. This episode has jumped to an almost Albert Fish level of crazy, right? The needle of insanity is pointing towards showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. When does this party break out the hot apple cider? Who's bringing the, the peanut butter? Between April and October 1986, according to court papers, Mitchell's death angels, right? Another term for the members of the Brotherhood. Right, and those on the cusp of being in the Brotherhood descend on Miami frequently to kill random white people. This is where former NFL defensive end Robert Rozier enters the timeline. Six foot three, nearly 300 pound psychopath, already wanted by police for petty crimes like bad checks and forgery. He moves into the Temple of Love after serving a six month prison stint, changes his name to Nariah Israel, child of God, works in the Yahweh Booze Factory, earns brownie points with Temple elders for working hard. Then on a Saturday night, April of 1986, Rozier decides to try out for the Brotherhood. He dons some street clothes, slips a 12-inch Japanese-style knife into his jacket, leaves the warehouse to go hunting for white devils, literally hunting white people on the streets of Miami. Rozier ends up in Coconut Grove, a thriving gay neighborhood, and this psycho follows groups of people around looking for someone who's weak or small to separate themselves from the pack, impatient to kill one of them. He's like a lion or a cheetah in a fucking National Geographic wildlife special looking at other human beings like gazelles out on the prairie right now. This guy's a nightmare. A couple years back, he's playing in the NFL. Now he just wants to hurry up and find a white devil so he can kill him, bring an ear back to his child molesting God and go to sleep in the warehouse compound. This is his real life in these moments. A white man, Glendale G. Fowler, 52-year-old hospital technician, is stumbling down the street as if he's drunk. This catches Rosier's attention and he falls into his apartment. 
This is a man he's never met, a man he's never laid eyes on. Right before this night, this guy opens his door, Rosier forces his way inside, stabs this dude in the heart. There was another white man in the living in the apartment, his roommate, Kurt Dorr, 44-year-old waiter, stabs that guy to death as well. He briefly considers chopping their heads off with a knife to take to Mitchell, but he can't figure out how to transport their heads discreetly in public. So he just leaves. Allegedly, when Rozier showed Lord Mitchell his knife the next day and told him what he did, Yahweh Ben Kilwadi praised him. But he didn't bring back a body part like he'd been told. So he wasn't inducted fully into the brotherhood quite yet. Rules are rules. Bring me thou whitest of thy ears, so saith the Lord. Next time, Rozier would bring back a body part. The following month, May 18th, 1986, about 20 of the Yahweh's, mainly women and children, head to a particularly crime-ridden place called Delray Beach to recruit door-to-door. While delivering pamphlets, they are confronted by some neighborhood youths who don't appreciate them being in their neighborhood. Things get confrontational. The scene turns into a street fight uh, where the white robe followers get bloodied, beaten, and eventually chased out of the neighborhood. And Yahweh ben Yahweh, not pleased. He is furious. How dare these motherfuckers defy God? Two days later, about a half a dozen homes in the Delray Beach area are bombed and burned. The police believe it's most likely the work of Yahweh's death angels. You don't beat his flock and get away with it. If anyone's going to beat his flock, it's going to be him. According to later court testimony, several months later in September, Rozier, who would later admit to killing seven people, kills again. He and another death angel walk the streets of Miami for hours looking for more white devils to kill. They're gone hunting again. Eventually, they come across a man passed out in a car in a bar parking lot. The bar was the TP Lounge. The man's name was Raymond Kelly. Kelly wakes up to being murdered by strangers. The two men stab him in the chest repeatedly, then slice off his ear to please Yahweh ben Yahweh. And then on the way back to the compound, one of these two idiots drops his severed ear in the dark and they can't find it. So they have to go back and they cut off his other ear and they bring that ear to Mitchell. What a weird moment of reality. These two were out in the late night darkness of Miami, arguing about an ear they just cut off a stranger, an ear that they cut off to, to, to please a con man who they thought was God. What were they saying? Dude, I told you to put the ear in your fucking pocket. I'm not putting an ear in my pocket, Bob. That stain doesn't come out. These are my good jeans. Well, then you should let me carry it. I cut it off. I should have carried it. Where'd you drop it? Well, Bob, if I knew where I dropped the ear, it wouldn't be lost, would it? Fuck, we're never going to find it. Wait, 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 John, John. Hold on, hold up. I have an idea. How many ears do most people have? Uh, I don't know, two, I think. Why? How much is two minus one? I don't know, Bob. Math was never my strong suit. But I think one. Exactly. Still has another ear. We can get it. The night's not totally lost. You're, God, you are a genius, Bob. You're genius. Police would later learn that a gun Kelly always carried in his glove compartment was also stolen by Rozier. This gun would soon help link Rozier to other murders, help bring this whole cult down. As a reward for killing a random white dude, Lord God Mitchell gives these two shitheads the following day free. And Rozier would later testify that they celebrated by going to see the movie Aliens. These fucking idiots. They kill a white man because they hate white devils. And then they celebrate by buying tickets to Aliens, a movie written and directed by white devil James Cameron, a movie starring white devil Sigourney Weaver, a movie starring other white devils, Michael Biehn, Paul Reiser, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, William Hope, Jeanette Goldstein, white Jewish devil, the president of the studio that made this movie. 20th Century Fox at the time was ran by Sherry Lansing, Jewish woman, white woman. Right, the cast had one black man, a little-known character actor, Al Matthews, gunnery sergeant Apone. These two stupid fucks kill a white person because they hate white people and celebrate by financially supporting a very white movie. 
as more white men, usually homeless or alcoholic drifters, start showing up dead on the mutilated streets of Miami. The police initially think the killer is a deranged Vietnam vet. They never suspect the killings have been ordered by one of the city's revered black business leaders. Remember, and remember with all this too, one of the reasons they weren't caught earlier is the police are super busy in Miami in the 80s. Certain neighborhoods were war zones at this time. Homicide detectives had big ass stacks of papers on their desks. One of the most murderous cities in the US, the most murderous city in the US for part of the 80s. On October 30th, 1986, the cult commits an even more brazen murder. They'd taken over the mortgage on an apartment in Opelaka, a small city less than 15 miles northwest of Miami. When they tried to evict the residents, some residents refused to leave. Yahweh's death angels, the brotherhood, they were sent in to forcibly remove these people. TV cameras show up and interview some of the people there who don't want to leave. And two of these residents brazenly denounce the nation of Yahweh on camera. These same two residents found shot to death later that same evening. They had been murdered execution style. Yahweh ben Yahweh was drunk with power. He thought he could just murder whoever the fuck gave him a problem whenever he wanted. These brazen killings finally lead to a real break in the case that would lead to the downfall, downfall of this entire cult. And we will talk about that break right after one last sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Pussy Blower. Are you certified in prenatal, unborn, suffocating, or strangling young baby, life-saving oxygen womb emergency resuscitation? Better known by its acronym, Pussy Blower? If you're not, your unborn children are constantly at risk of choking. If you're in a business and your employees aren't Pussy Blower certified, you're opening yourself up to millions of dollars in potential liabilities. Millions of tiny unborn babies just hanging out in their mother's uteruses, able to talk, able to breathe air. They choke every single year. Sometimes they choke on candy. Irresponsible mothers sneak into their vaginas to give their babies a treat. Sometimes they choke on toys. Their mothers or fathers or friends of their mothers push into their vaginas. But if you are a pussy blower, they don't have to. Still not convinced? Please hear a quick word Quick word from Pussy Blower CEO and inventor of the Pussy Blower certification method, Yahweh Ben Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, uh, it is I, uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, the grand potentate, Father Love. Don't let unborn babies choke her. God wants you to blow her. Blow her. Blow her on that pussy and give that baby new life. Lick it open and blow her. Lick it open while I hit her that asshole from behind her and keep her you focused her. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, that's how it works, I guess. Please head to pussyblower.biz to attend a workshop, order the DVD, or see a list of credible celebrity endorsements such as Father Yod. Ballin', baby. Blow, blow, blow. Make that baby go, go, go. Focus on the whole, the whole of life, the whole of hope. Blow into it. Make friends with it. Put your mouth on it. Heal it. And now I'm back. Couldn't help myself. I'm so jaded now. Uh, but that just got me so much. I just, I know. I've talked about it a lot, but it's one of the, again, one of the most absurd things I've ever read about. Now back to those brazen apartment tending killings that finally led to a real break in the case that led to the downfall of the cult. A witness told police that they'd seen Rozier kill these people, right? These people who testified on camera that they didn't like what the nation of Yahweh was doing to their apartment. And this NFL burnout uh, gets arrested on Halloween, 1986, charged with the murders. At first, he refuses to cooperate with investigators. This lunatic uh, says that his age is 404. And he answers all of their initial questions by saying, praise Yahweh. Officers then go to uh, where he was found, discover his murder weapons. One being the revolver, Rosier had stolen from Raymond Kelly's car, right? They're like, dude, we, we got you. We got you red-handed. With evidence mounting against him, it's an open and shut death penalty case. Prosecutors make Bob a deal. He doesn't refuse because they don't want him. They want Yahweh ben Yahweh. In exchange for testifying against the cult, he would only get a 22-year prison sentence, as we mentioned earlier, right? He'd be out after seven years on parole. 
Talk about a deal with the devil. They wanted Yahweh ben Yahweh so bad. They've been trying to get him for so long. They were willing to let his serial killer walk free in less than a decade. Now, Lord Mitchell is nervous. The noose begins to tighten on his evil empire. He scurries to polish his cult's image. He hires a media-savvy lawyer, Ellis Rubin, as an advisor, holds open houses where community leaders and journalists, you know, traipse to the previously hidden confines, the temple of love, right? They want to make Rozier look like a liar, right? He does have a criminal history of forgery. He is a liar. They want to make it look like he acted alone. He was acting rogue, right? Uh, Father Mitchell has his enforcers exchange their, their weapons for briefcases. Smiling children sit in clean classrooms, reciting lessons. Smiling Yahweh's greet investigators warmly. They, they give them tours of the facilities. They take down all their racist, racist fucking paintings and talk. Mitchell tells them he's, you know, one big happy family. Tells guests that his church is all about black empowerment, not murder or hate. They don't hate anybody. They just, you know, they just want to be proud. He insists that Rozier is a loose cannon. Troubled soul, he's trying to help. And through legal maneuvering, he remains free for several more years. He makes more money. He fucks more cult members. He molests more children. Teaches more vaginal CBR classes. October 7th, 1990, the mayor of Miami, Xavier Suarez, declares the day Yahweh Ben Yahweh Day. And this is years after that. This is at an event held at the Miami Arena, attended by thousands of his followers. He rewards the now 54-year-old psychopath for being an incredible business leader, a pillar of the black community. Meanwhile, a federal grand jury is finally putting the last touches on a 25-page indictment, accusing Yahweh and 15 disciples of 14 murders, extortion, running a racketeering enterprise. Right? There's so many other murders we didn't even talk about. A few weeks after Mayor Suarez's announcement, God's son of God is arrested in New Orleans. Obviously, I was wrong, Suarez would tersely say when reporters asked him about his reaction of Mitchell's arrest. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I bet he felt a little foolish about endorsing this guy. <laughs> Whoopsies. JK, JK about Yahweh been Yahweh day. Oopsie daisy. Probably not, probably would have not done that if I would have known about the murder and the molesting and the white devil talk. November 7th, 1990, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh headquarters are raided in five states. Yahweh been Yahweh and 16 others are arrested, charged under RICO Act, Racketeer, Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act charges, which makes sense. They're more of an organized crime operation now than they are a religious institution. Hulan Mitchell Jr. is basically a mob boss. The case is finally tried in 1992 at the U.S. District Court in Fort Lauderdale. It begins on January 16th, or 6th. The presiding judge, Norman Rodiger, uh, calls it the most violent case he's ever been a part of. Fearing Mitchell's followers might pull a stunt, worried for his own safety, he has fed secure the streets around the courthouse with SWAT teams. Over the objections of the defendant's lawyers, the jury has shown 30 by 40 inch photos of some of the victims, including Aston Green's torso and severed head, to illustrate the cult's savagery. Uh, dissenters who had suffered in silence for years finally have their day in court. They provide lurid details of the cult's inner workings. One man tells the jury how he'd lost his sense of self after working long hours day after day and not sleeping or eating enough. Reminiscent of Jim Jones here. Keep people tired, hungry, confused. History has shown over and over that they're much easier to, to control that way. We just touched on that recently in the Pol Pot Khmer Rouge genocide suck. I saw my own children starving, this man testified. I was beaten. Mitchell had sex with almost every woman in the temple, including my wife. As more than a dozen former followers took the witness stand, including his own sister and nephew, Hulan Mitchell and the court did call him that. No more Yahweh ben Yahweh, motherfucker. He kept a poker face. Mildred Banks testified with a scarf hiding the scar where his thugs had slit her throat. Robert Rozier, released from prison for the occasion, recounted the six murders he'd committed on behalf of Yahweh in cold detail. He admitted to stabbing a seventh man to death on his own accord. Uh, a Cuban panhandler uh, who wouldn't leave him alone. Man, this dude, right? 
Uh, the seventh one was Nicole. I'll take I'll take that one. I'll take that one on the chin. Uh, that stinky stinky homeless dude just wouldn't stop asking me for a dollar. You know <laughs> what was I what was I supposed to do? Not not stab him to death. Uh, although witness testified, uh, witnesses testified at length about the murder of dissidents and white devils, the prosecution could not legally prove that Mitchell ordered the deaths. Eventually, Mitchell himself had to take the stand in the case the U.S. versus God, Son of God, got even weirder. He identified himself in court as the grandmaster of the Celestial Lodge, the architect of the universe, and he denied everything. He said his religion was about love, not death. And then the fate of God, son of God, was handed over to the jury. Jurors agonized over the verdict for five days, I guess multiple verdicts, several times declaring themselves hopelessly hung. Was he going to get away with all this? Wednesday morning, Miller the forewoman sent out a message. The jury is hung on so many issues that only through time will any decision, if any, be reached on all counts. I never expected this and I am scared, added Miller, who was scheduled to enter law school on Wednesday. But a few hours later, the jury returned with the verdict. Miller said Wednesday night that jurors argued and shouted, but remained friends. She said, we're, thick, we're so thick-skinned, we respect each other as people. Re- religion remained not an issue whatsoever, nor was race. After a decade-long investigation, a year and a half of court dates, 160 witnesses, the ethnically diverse jury handed down the verdict. The, pro- the prosecution was stunned. The panel acquitted seven disciples, convicted seven of conspiracy, declared a mistrial in the case of two members when they failed to agree on a verdict. They found Mitchell guilty of conspiracy, but they deadlocked on the racketeering charge. Judge Rodiger sentenced uh, seven disciples to 15 to 16 years each and Mitchell 18 years. They were found innocent of murder. His followers cried tears of joy. His victims, tears of frustration. The cult got away with multiple murders and all the child molestations got away with that too. Praise Yahweh for victory, Mitchell said, dressed in the sex traditional white garb, his ankles cuffed together. Sometimes the truth comes out in court. And Rozier still gets his plea bargain, even though his testimony didn't do shit. He confessed, he confessed to killing seven men in seven months, six allegedly on Yahweh's behest, but the jurors didn't believe he did it because of Yahweh. They found his story of being sent to kill, quote, white devils over the top. The outrageousness of Yahweh ben Yahweh's crimes actually helped him. His story was so fucking crazy, the jury couldn't believe it. In the end, after everything you've heard, Hulan Mitchell Jr. would only serve 11 years in prison. He was incarcerated in 1990, released on September 26, 2001, 65 years old. Mitchell was released on parole, returned to Miami, where uh, at least his activities were strongly restricted until a few months before his death. He was prohibited from reconnecting with his old congregation. He was restricted from any form of speech by internet, telephone, computer, radio, or television that can place him in contact with congressional members. In 2006, as he became increasingly ill with prostate cancer, his attorney, Jane Weintraub, petitioned, probably white devil, uh, petitioned the U.S. District Court for his release from parole in order to permit him to die with dignity. And, uh, and this, this was allowed, which pisses me off, right? They might not, might not, yeah, they might not have been able to prove it in court, but they knew this motherfucker was a murderous piece of shit. He didn't let any of his followers live with dignity. Right? The kids he raped, they didn't get any dignity. The white devils, you know, the, the, were murdered to please him. They didn't die with dignity. May 7, 2007, Yahweh Ben Yahweh dies of prostate cancer at the age of 71, and the world got a little bit better. And that takes us out of today's timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Holy shit, what a story. I had no idea how truly insane this suck would be when I picked this topic. Yahweh preached from Oklahoma to Georgia to Florida. He preaches a Christian healer. Preaches the nation of Islam, black Muslim. He preaches a black Hebrew Israelite. For decades, he preached a message of hate. 
a message of us versus them, a message of separation and segregation. He attracted thousands of Miami followers with the message that blacks are God's chosen people, black supremacy. They are better than everyone else. He proclaimed himself as God on earth. He built a $100 million real estate portfolio. Miami mayor Xavier Suarez proclaimed a Yahweh Ben Yahweh day in 1990. At the height of his power in the late 1980s, the Miami-based nation of Yahweh actually housed churches in 45 cities, 16 countries. His daughter and former lawyer, as well as many of his former followers, still believe he was innocent and actually framed. And while they may not have active churches, they do still have an active website. YahwehBenYahweh.com has a contact number and an email. I've called. I've gotten a hold of a real person and, uh, you know, was asked, uh, I asked them if the Yahweh Ben Yahweh movement was still active. They wouldn't say. They just uh, transferred me, sent me to voicemail. I've emailed, I've assured them that uh, though my name may sound white, that I'm not white, not some white devil trying to waste their time. I've yet to hear back. I was fascinated by this topic. Glad we did it. I think it's a good reminder that everyone can be racist. It's not a white person's disease. It's a human disease. And it's always ignorant, no matter who's doing it. I do think African-Americans have far more emotional, historical motivation to be racist than white Americans. But if you just keep bouncing the hate back and forth, it never goes away. The pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth. Group A hates group B, which pisses off group B. And then group B's kids grow up to hate group A's kids, which pisses them off. And then group A's kids, now they grow up to hate group B's kids. And it just goes back and forth on and on forever. Don't hate based on race. Hate based on character. If you need to hate, there's plenty of worthy targets. We've talked about a lot of them right here on Time Suck. Or if you're a better meat sack than me, try to love those you hate. Kill them with kindness. I struggle with that one, but I, I do see its value. So hail Nimrod, you motherfuckers. Thanks for being a group that's real easy to love. I hear in meet and greets every time I do shows now from people who have been helped in a variety of ways, emotionally, financially, even physically by the kindness of strangers, strangers who don't care what race they are, what their political affiliation is, what their sexual persuasion is. They just love fellow meat sacks. We, we got a good, good cult here. We got a great cult. And it pleases the shit out of Nimrod. And it makes Lucifina oh so wet with joy. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Yahweh Ben Yahweh really wanted to be a religious leader. It was the game this con man loved to play. He tried multiple times in multiple places before getting it right or getting it real wrong with the nation of Yahweh in Miami. Number two, before the federal government sent him to prison, dude made a fortune. Combining the money of his followers with his own investments, right, helped make the group millions of dollars, right? Something he had $100 million worth of real estate. Uh, you know, the group themselves claimed uh, they had $250 million worth of assets. You know, they, they definitely bought, you know, around 20 properties, lots of fancy cars. Number three, defensive end, Death Angel, Robert Rozier. What a fucking psycho. Dude killed seven people that he admitted to. It was his choice to steal a gun from one of the crime scenes that would tie him to several other crime scenes and tumble the nation of Yahweh House cards. Number four, there are still many people, including one of Mitchell's own daughters and former lawyer, that do think he was framed and innocent. Did this daughter think that, you know, that his own sister made up Mitchell raping her? Right? Ah, oh, man. These people, they, they believe that he was, he's just part of a long line of black leaders that was intentionally harmed by the white status quo. White devils bringing him down with lies. Fuck that. This dude was no Dr. King. He's a piece of shit. A uh, piece of shit's coming all colors, including black. Number five, new info. The nation of Yahweh may no longer be around as an active cult. It doesn't appear. But there are still black Hebrew Israelites around that are every bit as racist. Remember the January 2019 Nick Sandman case? Viral video showing a white teenage boy from a Catholic private school standing, excuse me, smiling smugly at an American Indian elder beating a ceremonial drum. Did you assume the worst when that happened? I'll admit I did. Like many Americans, I thought that kid had a, one of the most punchable faces I'd ever seen. 
But did you know that aggressively racist black Hebrew Israelites were the real villains that day? Nick Sandman, 15-year-old kid from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky, wearing a Make America Great Again hat, his rowdy peers were shouting. And by the way, that hat does not make somebody a piece of shit. I hate that narrative. Very reductionary, narrow-minded to think supporting a mainstream political candidate makes someone just a terrible person overall. Very polarizing way to approach political discourse. I have friends who are diehard Democrats. I have friends who are hardcore Republicans. Guess what? Both sides have great people in them. Uh, Media coverage immediately frames this issue as another outbreak of white supremacy and white male privilege in America, right? Only uh, Only President Donald Trump was to blame, but that's not the truth. And this isn't me being political. This is me spreading facts. There were four BHIs that escalated that confrontation. The Covington Catholic kids were waiting for their bus to leave when they got a fucking earful from some grown men who were bigots. After having his life altered forever by the media and getting countless death threats and being painted as a white supremacist, Nick Sandman released a statement referring to the BHIs saying they called us racist, bigots, white crackers, faggots, incest kids. They taunted an African-American student from my school by telling him that we would harvest his organs. I have no idea what that insult means, but it was startling to hear, Sandman wrote. Uh, that reference, uh, most think, was uh, a reference to the Jordan Peele horror satire Get Out, by the way, 2017 movie, uh, which a black boyfriend of a white woman, a uh, white girl discovers his family is, is harvesting the organs of black people. Uh, in an interview with the Washington Post, Omaha Nation elder Nathan Phillips, that American Indian man uh, banging that drum, he corroborated Salmon's statement. He said that a third group was to blame for the escalation on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He said it appeared to him that the dynamic between the Covington kids and the black nationalists was getting tense close to possible violence, so he intervened to pray. Later, a 90-minute YouTube video emerged showing the third group that Sandman accused of offending him, his classmates, and the American Indian protesters, black Hebrew Israelites. Pretty obvious if you watch what happened. Certainly not how the media portrayed it, which is unfortunate. These assholes were screaming obscenities at these kids. These racists were doing everything outside of physically assaulting them to bait them into a confrontation. Nick Sandman sued several major media outlets that his lawyers and family felt did most of the damage, including CNN, uh, went after them for a defamation, and they, they recently settled, likely for seven figures. Man, the BHI still around, still hating white devils, still causing problems. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The nation of Yahweh has been sucked, and fuck those guys. Big thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Reverend Dr. Paisley, the Bit Elixir app design crew, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com, and script keeper Zach Flannery. Uh, check out the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group if you want to make some new friends. Thank you to the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, for being a good kick-ass administer. Uh, thanks to you guys for being so great in there and being so kind to one another. I know I say a lot of crazy shit here on the show, but there's a lot of things I would say here that I would not necessarily say in the uh, private Facebook group, especially not to someone directly, because then that just creates a confrontational environment and the rest of the internet is, is the place for that. So thanks for keeping it cool inside the cult. Uh, over 17,000 meat sacks in there. Um, so, uh, and yeah, and hearing so many great stories come out of that. And, and again, uh, Time Suck Discord channel, you can access via the Time Suck app over 5,500. Diehard suckers in there for more interaction. Thanks, Beefsteak. Next week, we get extra weird. The Space Lizards have chosen Baba Yaga, monster of Russian folklore. <laughs> Baba Yaga, a supernatural being, one of, the, one of a, or sometimes one of a trio of sisters of the same name, who appear as a deformed or ferocious looking old woman or old women. 
typically just one person. She lives deep in the Russian forest uh, in, in a house that stands on chicken legs. Uh-huh. Baba Yaga may help or hinder those who encounter her. She has an odd look. Her, her nose may stick into the ceiling. A particular emphasis may be placed uh, by, you know, or is placed by some narrators on the repulsiveness of her nose or her breasts or her buttocks or even her vagina. And it's just, it's weird. It's all weird. If you like the Brothers Grimm suck, you're going to like this one. Another wild ride. Uh, let's get to those, uh, some heated Time Sucker updates now on today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. First update comes in from infuriated government employee, Joe. I will leave his last name out of this because I don't want people to come back at him. Uh, Joe writes, as a mediocre government employee, as, as you have described us, I'd like to just let you know that in my time in government service, the people I work with are some of the finest people in the world. The majority of us do our job not for money or anything like that. Well, everybody does jobs for money to some extent. Uh, in fact, most government employees are the lowest paid workers in the U.S. economy for college-educated employees and could be making more in the private sector. But they do have great benefits. Uh, we do the job because we all have a desire to help people and we do it despite the condemnation of the general public who do not understand what we do, how we do, what we do. We have routinely in the past 20 years taken the abuse of the news media politicians and the general public and yet we still go to work and feel, feel that what we do makes a difference. The sacrifices I've seen my friends and public service make in order to continue to do what they do is not only beyond mediocre, it's laudable, deserves praise. As it is, we, the mediocre government workers, make sure that the unemployed get their checks, that child welfare is maintained, clear the roads, protect natural resources, and generally make the gears of everyone's life work, work smoothly and typically behind the scenes with no praise, no thank you, just admo admonitions, jokes, and name calling. Uh, holy shit, man, Joe, you were triggered by some comments in the Oklahoma bombing suck. First off, I don't think I ever said mediocre. Uh, it's not in my notes. I don't recall saying that word specifically. I definitely never said that all government employees are mediocre. I know that for sure because I don't, I don't think that. I said that my experiences with private sector employees and many customer service uh, areas have been better overall than my experience with public servants in the same area. And I do stand by that. Uh, it, it makes sense to me. It's human nature. I don't have to go to Starbucks. There's a lot of other coffee shops I can go to if I want coffee. But if I want a driver's license, I have to go to the DMV. The nature of market competition versus zero market competition will, of course, create a different power balance between consumer and provider, between business and customer. It has to. Because of that imbalance, because of free market competition, private sector employees have more incentive to work harder for your business. So overall, in some ways, they often do. They often are a little friendly. And I, that's been my experience many, many times. That doesn't mean that all government employees are shitty employees. I don't believe that for a second. I do believe that it's easier for a government employee to be less friendly to the customer than it is for a private sector employee for the reason they've just described. But yes, some government employees obviously are fucking awesome. There's a huge range. My grandma worked at the post office for over 30 years, did so with a smile on her face. Some of her coworkers were fucking assholes uh, who could give a shit about their customers. Uh, if her post office would have been a privately owned UPS store, I'm positive they would have been fired. That being said, Joe, I, I know that many private sector employees are also pieces of shit when it comes to customer service. If you're still listening, you're still mad at me, well, I, I hope you don't work for the IRS. And if, and if you're doing a good job, which it sounds like you probably are, well, then thanks, dude. Now let's get to an even angrier message. Uh, time sucker David. I will leave his last name out as well. Super pissed after the Oklahoma City suck. And, uh, and, and David read into uh, a lot of shit that I never even said. Uh, David wrote, Hey, mofo. <laughs> That's when you know it's going to be a fun one. Hey, motherfucker. 
when it opens that way. Do you really think that the citizenry could stand a chance against the military? I don't think so. All they got to do is cut off communications like cell service, the internet, jam various FM frequencies, eavesdrop on what's left. Without comms and information, you're screwed. Also, regarding government overreach, the most obvious example to me are the male and female sociopaths who become cops. According to them, studies, according to them that study this stuff, sociopaths become CEOs, lawyers, surgeons, and cops. As we see every day, cops lie, plant evidence, hide exculpatory evidence, murder, beat citizens to within, inch, within an inch of their lives, use torture to get false confessions, use chemical warfare via pepper spray and gas, and the list goes on and on about how they bully, intimidate, and harass citizens that haven't done anything illegal, but some, somehow end up at the wrong place at the wrong time and encounter a sociopath with a badge. Look at the disparity between how much jail time a plain old ordinary citizen gets for a violent crime versus a cop found guilty of the same offense. The whole entire injustice system is fucked up and needs to be torn down and redone. Occasionally, the cops bust people as bad, evil, and violent as cops themselves are. Even rare, bust someone worse than them. Mostly, they just fuck with people. Like pulling someone over and saying, your wheels touch the white line, get out of the car so I can conduct a sobriety check. Chances are that driver, me, (laughs) did not touch the white line with his vehicle wheels. But what are you going to do? You deal with the bully with the badge says, except you say, I will not even try to say the damn alphabet backwards. I've been incul- in, inculcated, in, inculcated. I don't know what that means. Uh, inoculated. Oh, I think it's just a slight. Okay. I've been inoculated over a lifetime. That The alphabet goes from A to Z, left to right. I will say my name phonetically. Delta, Alpha, Delta, Alpha, Victor, India, Delta. But I will not say the damn alphabet backwards. And after checking to see if you are wanted for something and you are not, they hand back your license and go back to hunting someone else to fuck with. So fuck the police and you suck, Master General. <laughs> wow. Gosh dang. Uh, David, classic emotional thinking there, my friend. You clearly had a bad experience with one cop who pulled you over. Maybe you've had a bad experience with a few cops. And now to quote you, mostly they just fuck with people. That's not true. Uh, and studies say that sociopaths become CEOs, lawyers, surgeons, and cops. Yeah, some do. Uh, do you hate all CEOs, lawyers, and surgeons too? Right? Hope you never need surgery or a job or police protection. Guess you have to get in bed with the devil if you do. Uh, and what studies are you talking about, by the way? I noticed when people send angry emails and reference studies, they never actually send links. Uh, an article published in 2018 by Business Insider uh, did talk about top 10 professions for sociopaths. Kevin Dutton. British psychologist and writer specializes in the study of psychopathy in his book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Uh, He made a list of the types of jobs that attract the most psychopaths. And Kevin says that number 10, civil servants. So Joe, from the previous message, maybe, maybe, maybe so's about. JK, JK, gosh dang. Uh, Number nine, chef. Number eight, clergy person. Number seven, uh, to your point, David, police officer. Number six, journalist. Number five, to your point, surgeon. Number four, salesperson. Number three, media person in TV or radio. Makes sense. Podcasts are basically new radio. I'm a sociopath. Number two, lawyer. And number one is daycare provider. I did not see that coming uh, because it's not true. No, uh, number one to your point is uh, CEO. But David, what the study does not talk about is the percentage of sociopaths within each of those professions, which is the most important number. As far as officers being punished, less than non-officers for the same crimes. Yeah, you're right. Is that because the police are pieces of shit? Uh, or is this typical uh, of the phenomenon of just professional courtesy seen in just about every profession? Am I more likely to sneak in another comic for free to one of my shows, right? If, if you're not supposed to be able to get in or a non-comic? Comic, 100%. Uh, comics will do that for one another. We help each other out. We will do each other favors that we won't do for non-comics in certain professional ways. Uh, you don't think cops do that? Watch out for each other? Help each other out of jams? David, if you were a cop, do you think you would give speeding tickets to your friends at the same rate that you would give them to strangers? 
Fuck. No, come on. To counteract this element of human nature, there are now dashboard cameras. Cameras officers wear on the uniforms, et cetera. More and more investigations are being done internally. Have cops been corrupt many times? Yeah, we just talked about that today. Yeah, back in Miami. Uh, are most cops corrupt? That's a big jump. No study I've been able to find, and I've looked a lot, comes even remotely close to suggesting that. Uh, as for the citizenry standing up to the military, I feel like no one's hearing what I'm trying to say there. I don't think citizens could fucking beat the military in a fair fight. How, more, how, more, how much more clearly can I fucking say that? I've never said that. Listen, please, to what I actually do say. I think an armed insurgency could give the military problems, could slow down their progression of conquering. Maybe slow things down enough to create a dialogue. Maybe wreak enough havoc to cause more people to join a rebellion, right? Maybe, uh, you know, win in some small way in that way. I don't think they're going to actually like, you know, kick the army's ass. Uh, our next time sucker uh, better communicates what I've been trying to say in that regard. And, uh, and go meet more cops, David. Go for some ride-alongs. You can, you can do that. Volunteer for a ride-along. Spend a day with a couple police officers and see if you still think that way. I doubt you will. They're not all evil. Uh, meticulous meat sack, Joshua Robley sends some militia numbers my way with an awesome and thorough militia update. Joshua writes, greeting suck master, brace yourself. It's going to be a read. A few times during the Oklahoma City bombing suck, you mentioned that you had changed your stance regarding armed citizens standing up to a tyrannical government to the point of view that they might be able to make a difference. I'm going to give you some numbers and logic. I think it will change your mind again to the, yeah, they'd for sure do it group. The population of the U.S. is 327 million. Of that, there are 1.3 million active duty military stationed here in the U.S. and abroad. There are 800,000 reserve military, 850,000 sworn police officers. Now the generally accepted proportion of Americans that would take up arms against a tyrannical government is thought to be around 3%. Using that number, you'd end up with 39,000 active military, 24,000 reserve military, 25,500 police, 9,721,500 civilians that would resist a tyrannical government. The remaining government force of military and police would be about 2.8 million. These 2.8 million government, police, and military will be fighting an armed populace of 9.8 million. For ease of distinction, I'm going to call them militia from now on. There would be over three times more militia members than police and military combined, assuming that all deployed personnel overseas are brought back to the U.S. to quell an uprising. Now when we look at, I fucking love the way you've broken this down. Now when we look at capabilities, the military and police have tanks, bombs, planes, et cetera. The militia have members in the police and military, so they would know the capabilities and vulnerabilities of all this equipment. They'd know where these assets can and can't be used, how to defeat them, weak points, maneuvering abilities, and inabilities. The militia would know how to stop a tank. Additionally, they would have an understanding of tactics and training that the government and police would use against them. This makes it difficult to fight when the militia knows how to counterstrike and disable perceived advantages the military and police force may have. With regard to bombs and large weapons, the militia doesn't have them, but the government wouldn't be able to use them. Militia members would be spread across the country, spread across cities and towns. The government couldn't just drop bombs because of the collateral damage to supporters of the government. They couldn't just bomb downtown Seattle because they destroyed not only the militia, but also innocent and or many compliant citizens. If they did choose to do that, it would lead to the government being discredited. And much like we saw in Iraq, the government would be painted as the bad guy and would, in many cases, lead to more people joining the militia against the government, further straining their already smaller numbers. Additionally, since the militia is spread across the, spread across the country, the government would have to simultaneously strike the militia. If they didn't, targeted strikes would allow individuals to band together and counterattack the government or develop strongholds in areas that would work against the government like large cities that would render air attacks useless, limit visibility and maneuverability, and prevent the use of large area weapons like missiles and bombs. The militia would have a clear advantage in numbers and has the strategic advantage in that it wouldn't really have anything to lose, whereas the government 
could risk losing its credibility as a hero in the situation in the eyes of those not a part of the militia. Militia members don't have a uniform, so the militia would have another targeting advantage because they would know exactly who to shoot at. Pretty easy to point out a bunch of guys in armored personnel carrier wearing camel or vest with big yellow police tags all over them can't be said for government troops. Government troops would have to carefully inspect and identify possible militia members or risk shooting non-combatants. Understandably, militia members would have guns, but they could easily blend in with non-combatants and sneak away unscathed in the event of any door-to-door raids. Those would be a thing too, because the government would have to have some means of identifying militia members and door-to-door raids and unwarranted searches would need to be conducted for that purpose. Now, militias would take casualties. The quality and quantity of body armor the military and police would have would be greater than the militia. Access to medicine and hospitals may may prove problematic for militia members. There would be disadvantages. All things considered from a logistics and logical standpoint, the government wouldn't stand a chance even if only 3% of Americans decided to take up arms against a tyrannical government. The bulk of the major advantages would go to the militia comprised of as little as 3%. For the record, I'm not a militia member. I'm more similar to your political leanings as a libertarian. I do, however, like numbers and I like logic. I like learning about things. So while I'm not over here waiting for the boogaloo to start, I also understand that based on the numbers and stakes, if anything does kick off, I think I'd want to be on the side of the militia. Whether I'm convinced, whether I've convinced you or not doesn't matter. If anything, I'm just hoping you'll have some more things added to your brain muscle to think about and ponder during your travels on tour. Thank you. Keep on sucking. Josh Robley. Wow. That was a fucking nice, thorough message. You've added a lot to my brain muscle, Josh. Makes the resistance feel possible, which I hope never happens. I don't even think about people, you know, uh, leaving the ranks of the military and the police to be on the side of the militia in the case of a tyrannical government. I should have thought about that. Uh, and, I, and again, I hope this never happens. I'm a huge fan of the military. I'm a huge fan of law enforcement. I definitely uh, don't want uh, uh, this to ever happen. Uh, I just know that things can change, right? Things can change. We have an amazing country right now. It doesn't mean we will 30 years from now. So thank you for that info. Amazing. Now we have a firsthand Oklahoma City bombing experience. A message coming in from awesome meat sack, Anthony Thornton. Anthony writes, I just finished the Oklahoma City bombing episode and I thought I would share my personal experience from that day. I was at my job when the blast shook the building I worked in. My boss had recently bought a new monster dually truck and had difficulty squeezing it into his parking space and back. When the shock wave hit us, I walked out of my office and asked the receptionist if he had finally managed to hit the building. I looked out the window behind her and I could see the column of smoke rising from the direction of downtown. At first, we surmised that a plane might have crashed at the downtown air park, a private airfield. Debbie, the receptionist, turned on the TV and we saw the first images and reports of an explosion at the federal building. I ran back to my desk to call my fiance, who worked in a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City. Oh, shit. We were getting married in less than a month. I was able to get through before the phone lines were swamped. I was relieved to learn she was fine. Her building was around the corner from the blast. While it had taken some damage, everyone in her office was okay. She spent the next few weeks not only finalizing the plans for our wedding, but also working in her job at the U.S. Attorney's Office to support the federal prosecution of Noodle McDryween. And when we got back from our honeymoon, she went right back to it. She's a bad motherfucker. This May will be our 25th anniversary. On a kind of a funny note, later that fateful afternoon, several hours after the bombing, headlines around the world, I figured I should call my mom and let her know that her future daughter-in-law was safe. Here's how the call went. Me. Just wanted to let you know my, oh, my fiance's name is safe. She wasn't near the blast. Blast. Mom, what are you talking about? Me. Didn't you hear the explosion this morning? Mom. Well, yeah. Me. And you weren't the slightest bit curious of what happened. Mom. Um, me. Turn on your TV, mom. (laughs) Sigh. Well, Dan, keep on sucking, you magnificent bearded mother sucker. Anthony, 
still in Oklahoma. Dude, that is nuts. How crazy that you felt that, how crazy that your uh, fiance, now wife, was even closer. Thank God you two weren't closer. I imagine the two of you must think about it sometimes. If you'd have been just a few buildings over, could have died that day. Terrible, terrible act, uh, you know, McDryween committed. Senseless violence brought on by a delusional incel, you know, believing in a tyrannical government. Keep on sucking, Anthony. Now a very different message coming in from Oklahoma City bombing suck. Uh, I got TJ, wonderful sucker. TJ Simpson writes, Captain Cummins of Suck Force 5, you glorious bearded bastard. You finally got me. Oklahoma City bombing episode got me. I live in Lapeer, where Nichols is from and grew up not far away. Your anecdote about the bestiality ring got me because you mentioned... uh, I, I figured you did some research. The downtown area between some buildings does have adjoining passageways from old speakeasies and storage. Good job, fucker. As always, praise Triple M, Hail Lucifina, and fear the good boy Bojangles. Dude, that's hilarious. I had no, I had no idea that the downtown area had old basements with, you know, little walk, walkways in between them from the Prohibition days. I got lucky. I love that for just a moment, you thought that your town had a dark past filled with dog fucking. I also got James Wells last week with a different lie. I went hard on the lies, which is why I backed off this week. Mighty fine meat meat sack, James writes, dude, you had me on the don't tread on me representing the sodomizing of American troops. I about ran off the road. Fucking hilarious. Thank you, James. That was one of my favorite lies so far. Two lies that revolved around sexual acts on one suck. What's wrong with me? I'm clearly a dirty pervert. Be gone, Lucifina. And finally, Scott Wogan with an awesome message regarding today's suck. This kick-ass sucker writes, I met Yahweh Ben Yahweh. I was in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Miami, Florida when Ben was arrested along with several of his followers. I was there because I took the fantasy of robbing a bank all the way to to reality. Turns out I'm not good at being a criminal. And after an almost 20-minute chase on my motorcycle, I was rammed by a police car and arrested shortly thereafter. In the late 80s to early 90s, it was a time uh, for some er very interesting characters in federal prison. Manuel Noriega was there. He was in isolation, but I walked by him my first night on my way to see my attorney. I met a guy who was in the Bay of Pigs invasion. He, was, uh, he used all that great CIA training to smuggle cocaine. Uh, and, there were just two, and they were just two amongst a host of larger-than-life organized crime figures. Maybe I shouldn't think all this is super cool, but I do. Oh, my God. Scott continues, I worked in the electric shop, and one of my hustles was making reading lights for guys in the top bunks because the, calls, uh, because the cells were originally designed for one person that only had a lower bunk light. Ben was a soft-spoken guy with uh, pretty intense icy blue eyes. He uh, readily agreed to my two packs of cigarettes price and one of his underlings paid me. In case you're wondering why he had to sleep on the top bunk, that was the way it was when you uh, bunked in a new cell. The current occupant always kept a lower bunk. You had no initial control of who you bunked with. Though I didn't have any conversations with him after that, I often saw him on the yard surrounded by his followers who would sometimes be massaging his legs while he was stretching. I have no doubt many, if not all of them, would have killed or died for him. Later, I worked with one of his followers in the electric shop and he was easy to get along with, but tight-lipped about his personal connection with Yahweh Ben Yahweh. So unfortunately, I didn't hear any juicy details firsthand. A little long, but hopefully interesting. Love the show. I'm a space lizard. Shout out to my amazing wife, Larissa. Keep on sucking. Thank you, Scott. And hi, Larissa. Man, you did business with Yahweh Ben Yahweh. How manipulative was that dude, by the way, man? He, he kept his cult going in prison. Not sure if you're white or not, Scott, but Scott Wogan's a pretty white name. Can't believe uh, he was doing business in prison with a white devil. So many more amazing updates came in this past week. Uh, I think next week's suck is going to be a little leaner. This was a huge one. So I'll try and throw more updates in that one. Hail Nimrod, you curious bastard. I had so much fun today. Uh, I hope you did too. And I love all of the info. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did.
Have a great week, everybody. Don't start on your racist cults. Don't diddle cult members, kids. Don't tell anyone to blow in pregnant women's vaginas to save babies. But do keep on sucking. You want to blow on my vagina? Yeah, so I'm just going to go.